the same pace as the market, so they're not really growing. And um, you know, they'll they'll uh, they'll feel a pressure, but it's not necessarily a pressure that correlates with having to transform or something like that. It's just like an, an overbearing thing, and so or they can fudge the numbers and look like they're growing. And and financial engineering is kind of that term that I look at with uh, some companies, and you'll see their earnings is a step function every quarter. It's a step function upward, and it's it's very apparent when you see it that this is just uh, to make the numbers look good, and uh, you know th- that's to survive, I guess, to to make it make it work so that you can find the next company to to acquire and grow. Um, I, I guess for me, uh, I, I've just been lucky to see big companies, small companies. I was in a company like IBM. We had 400,000 people worldwide. And then I've got another company where it was me and the CEO locked in a room. Uh, and it's just, it's literally just us uh, trying to build something from nothing. And that was, that was my first job after IBM. And uh, I've learned a lot of stuff in that moment that uh, I don't think I could have done in most traditional, maybe even any traditional roles in a company, because you'd, you'll never wear that many hats. You'll never be allowed to take that much ownership in the beginning of your career, especially. So that's why I think startups are important and, and uh, very beneficial for your career. Um, and, and some people would say, uh, do it at the start, do it at the end. But I say, just do it. You know, just if you've got an idea you want to go find, you find a right team. I think a team is very important. Um, and you get that chance, that call, uh, take it. I think you should take it, uh, but take it smart. Don't, uh, we need to unpack that. I think there's a lot oh. <laughs> of uh, different fun things to talk about with you know, Definitely. startups and then, uh, you know, your experience in working in startups and large companies. So it's, uh, super fun to actually have you here today. Been looking forward to it for a while. And, uh, I'm here today because, uh, Andish and, uh, Henrik aren't here today. We miss them. We miss them. Uh, yes and no. It's hard to fill, (laughs) hard to fill the shoes. I'm going to do my best here. I brought with me a a good friend of mine, Eric, who is a very skilled engineer and has a colorful background that will, will give us uh, good perspectives on everything from startups, uh, working, uh, from the U S to Sweden and many other things. But I want to hear the story, uh, from your perspective, because, uh, the interesting thing is not necessarily the details, but the story, I think. So I want to hear you tell that story. Please introduce yourself. Who is Eric? Who are you? Uh, thanks for the kind words, Robert. Uh, and thank you, Goran, for, for having me. Uh, so Eric Peterson, I'm a computer scientist. I was trained at uh, UC San Diego back in back in the day, 2009, I graduated. Uh, grew up in California. So I understand my name is uh, Ganske Svensk. Um, but I don't speak so much Swedish. Um, I'd just been to Sweden for the last four and a half years. Um, I moved here because, um, you know, basically I, I tried everything that, uh, that I wanted to in California, but, uh, I've, I've now been enjoying Sweden, uh, really loving every moment of it. Feel very, uh, blessed to be here. And, uh, yeah, computer science, AI, uh, been, been nibbling at the corners, I'd say in my career, but, uh, I actually started with, uh, just, just, uh, grunt, you know, in, in IBM's machine, uh, you know, doing middleware. And at the end of that, I was there for four years, uh, started to, to nibble at analytics and advanced analytics. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, I think it's come full circle, this, uh, journey, uh, for me, but, um, yeah, we can get into whichever angle we want. Four years, four years might not seem like a lot. Do, does it feel like you've been here for a long time now? 
Uh, it well, the pandemic has really changed uh, my my um, how time feels, and, and I've been feeling very happy that uh, we can get out more. I, I was actually very conservative when I was, uh, you know, when we started this pandemic. I changed jobs, so I was uh, at at a firm and uh, decided to leave before the pandemic started, and I packed my bags and everything was good. And then I went to London uh, with my girlfriend. We uh, went to a wedding. As we came back from that wedding, uh, the news broke and uh, we went basically, I never had my goodbye fika. That was very sad. Uh, and then I had to basically give my laptop to a colleague who drove to our house or to our apartment. And uh, I haven't been back since. And, and it was a little bit, you know, odd because I know that uh, goodbye fikas are kind of against uh, It's uh, It's a part of the culture. But I had to, I had to go. And uh, then I've been working now at uh, Svedbank for two, two years and a couple months. And uh, their transition to working remotely, it's been, uh, I've been impressed actually. And uh, I, I've been very happy um, to, to see that because I think coming from the Valley um, and knowing a lot of these remote first companies like GitLab, um, it, it's been a challenge for all companies, but especially those classic companies that have never had to do this before, remote working and uh, the Zoom calls and time, I mean, I'm looking forward to California now because I've been here two years. I've got my permanent residency, so I'm very happy with that. But I'm looking forward to, yeah, getting, getting out of Sweden for a little bit. And, uh, you know, I will come back, uh, obviously. But um, I, I want to see the rest of Europe now, actually. And I would love to, to go hear some more tips, you know, especially Italy, because I know you, you have some connection there as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, so you have your feet in, in two places at the very least right now. Yeah. Yes. How yes. did that start? So you're a computer scientist. Tell me about, you know, how that computer science journey started. I want to hear from the beginning. So it's, it's easy. I liked computers as a kid. I think, uh, you know, I grew up gaming and uh, was living in the woods. Um, and I, I found, uh, you know, both my parents are scientists. My father was a PhD in oceanography. Mother is a master's in marine biology. And uh, I wanted to be a scientist. I, I, I didn't want to do what they did. Um, I ended up doing kind of what they do, uh, especially MATLAB and stuff. Uh, you know, I, I watched that growing up. But uh, I wanted to be a scientist and I loved computers. And so I just literally put those two words together. It didn't hurt that also that was kind of the hottest career at the time in Silicon Valley. And you're surrounded by a lot of great companies. Uh, while I was in college, Google became a thing. Um, and, and all of the rest that's happened with Silicon Valley and Apple and, and uh, all that crazy stuff. But computer science, um, for me, I, I, I was building computers. So I think, uh, you know, I just, I loved it and I wanted to learn more. And uh, one thing about me is, is if I find something and I fixate on it, I just keep studying it. I, I know I get into like, cars with you. And, and for me, I was starting to get into motors and engines and, and really like, how do the brakes work? How does this work? How can I safely fix this? Or is this going to kill me if you know, it falls on, on me after I try to take it out? Um, I, I think that's that engineer's uh, mindset where you just want to know, how does this stuff work? And that was also me with AI. I wanted to just jump in and figure out what is all this stuff. How did it end up with computers? That's something that was uh, related to Silicon Valley that, uh, you know, the, the computer mecca or is that part of your family or how did you? My father had a, like an old IBM clone and I had the orange monochrome screen uh, and you would, you would have the keyboard that you could click out and, uh, you know, mechanical keyboard and all that. And then you could hook that up to a VGA. So we had the, the color VGA monitor, you know, with the big CRT. 
Um, that was our first computer that I remember. And uh, the floppies, you know, five and a quarter, three and a half inch. That was like kind of where I started the 286 era. Um, and I remember my first PC, you know, gaming, building my own stuff. So it's just been a labor of love over the years. And, and you've seen that uh, Moore's curve, you know, uh, just so much, uh, you know, expansion of power in one little thing. And uh, I think that's been very um you know, it, it's reinforced a lot of independence that it allows you to do so much and you don't need to, you know, go to a big company and pick up the phone and, you know, oh, I need a, I need a big giant, you know, computational machine. We kind of do that now with the cloud, but that's another story. Okay. So you got into computers and you studied computers at university. <clears throat> I'm curious a little bit. Um, I think the journey from university to companies is a little bit different in Sweden um, than is it, it is in the U.S. I mean, um, the value of a degree in the U.S. Uh, degrees are, are are very highly valued, and here mm. in Sweden, I'm not going to say they're not as highly valued, but uh, we we think of them differently. I think a lot of people um, equate a lot of work life experience uh, after a certain number of years as maybe being equivalent to some kind of degree, whereas in the U.S., a degree is always a degree, and when you have it, mm. uh, even after ten, fifteen years, it's still you know a, a great source of pride. So. Uh, Tell me about your first job after university or, or your university years and the transition into, into work. I'll tell you about uh, my university jobs. So mm. I, I feel like I'm a very lucky uh, individual because uh, my first jobs were not computer jobs. I was, I'm, I'm a pretty normal guy, uh, I think, if you get to know me. And uh, I started in uh, working retail. I was working in a drugstore. I was working all sorts of odd jobs. I worked at the Kinko's across from Apple. So I got all the people that had to present to Steve Jobs on Monday on, on Friday night, you know, so they're all stressed out. But uh, my first, I would say, real computer science gig was um, at Scripps. So Scripps is the Oceanographic Institute in San Diego, La Jolla. And uh, my job was just as a junior systems analyst. And we were taking data and building a report for Arnold Schwarzenegger for the climate change. Um, so that we had, I think, we had three models or two models. One model is if we cut emissions by this much and we do the right stuff, what's going to happen to the rainfall? And then the second model is if we don't do anything, what's going to happen? And we were basically looking at two scenarios where we're not going to have enough water. And lo and behold, you know, X number of years later, like we are very low on water. And so growing up with an oceanographer and a marine biologist in the family, I learned the water cycle, you know, very early and how it all, you know, connects. Um, and one of the things that I've learned about my father and his writing was that he started as a geologist and then he came into oceanography and connected the two. And I think that's really interesting when you see these domains kind of merging and, and morphing together. When you have just one expertise, and, and this is something I'm very um, cognizant of that maybe I only know about computers, but if you have uh, two domains that you really feel passionate about, this is where you can find really interesting insights and new ways of thinking about something that no one else has really had the time or, or knowledge to, to bring together. And for him, it was about salinity, the geology of the oceans. And his uh, job was like focusing on the uh, ocean uh, connecting to the streams and the estuary system, the water cycle there. But uh, that's enough about, about him, maybe. <laughs> well, I mean, that's super cool. I think a lot of people think of uh, computational biology, computational genomics, computational everything. Everything is becoming computational. What, what year was this? And, and did people, did they call this data science, the stuff that you were doing? Or what was it? What would, what did I was an analyst. It? So I think data science, uh, if, if it was a term, it was not a term that was in the halls of, of scripts. Um, we were using Fortran. 
So we were still kicking around with Fortran. I think I was trying to use Java and just do some do some processing on stuff. But that was my first gig. Uh, I came in at about 2005, 2005. And uh, I said, so the reason I got that job was, unfortunately, I have to admit, like, I knew the guy. So his name was Dan Can. I love Dan Can uh, dearly. He's, he was family. So he would come to our house uh, up in Northern California. And uh, so I said to him, you know, I've gotten into UC San Diego can you get me a job at Cal IT squared? And he said, look, Eric, um, I don't know those guys, uh, but you could come and work with me and, and in the hydroclimate department, those connections were so key. And this is what I try to do in my current role. And my current career is, is to be open and uh, inviting to people who, who don't have those connections, uh, and to volunteer. And, and especially from being like a half Mexican family, um, we, we have so much work to do to connect each other so that we can find people that want to do these roles, but just haven't had that push or that um, just that uh, mentorship to to know that you can do it. If you want to do AI, anybody can do, you know, work in this space. I don't think it's uh, it, there's maybe some magic, but I mean, it doesn't take everybody to have magic. You, you We need to work together, especially on domains, uh, you know, domain expertise. Was that something you were aware of at the time or, or was it just happenstance that you knew that... <clears throat> Or rather that you ended up working in a couple of jobs while you were university, building up a network and all those things that now retrospectively you might be like, yeah, that was, that was a, a good move. I, I have uh, I, a necessity to, to try and work while I was in university. I couldn't do it. Uh, it was just too hard. So I was, I was doing work and realizing that my studies were suffering. It was the hardest thing I ever did graduating, uh, but it was worth it. And, and I feel very proud of that degree afterward. But, um, one story was like, I accidentally, I, I learned all the, the wrong things in university. That was the, the best thing. So I, I deleted a database in prod and the, the director, you know, he came to me and said, Oh, the pr production's gone. And I was like, I don't know what happened. And now I, I've learned like, you just got to be honest. And it's, it's set me right ever since to just be open and honest, but also to use infrastructure as code and, you know, back up your stuff. And he had a backup. So everything was fine. Cause I'm sure he had a plenty of university students do that before, but you just don't know what you don't know. So you just so nervous and and it's it's easier to open up and uh i learned a ton from him i'm still in contact with him uh abel he was uh even offering me to come back to san diego and i said i'm, I'm enjoying sweden but but thank you um yeah it's just been a blessing that's funny that's your first step into operations in unwillingly <laughs> deleting the database yeah i was doing uh, jsr <laughs> you know java bean stuff and uh i'm glad that those days are over i i, I learned java i use java but uh, i'm glad data science is uh, kind of not not too much i mean i know under the hood PySpark is powered by java but this this is kind of these you're standing on the shoulders of giants and and now there's this layer that most people are, are not even aware of how this stuff all works you're just doing the data science on top of it uh, and i've noticed this with some people that um, if you don't have a database they're not quite sure what what do you do where what do i what do i do and, mm -hmm. and you got to give them the data put it put it somewhere and then they're ready to rock and roll but um, for me, I'm, I'm kind of used to, I could do the hardware, could go in and do some ops. Um, we were doing a bunch of microservices at one of the places here in Sweden. Um, just redo it all. One of my, my favorite things to do is come in and find a mess. And then we just start over. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. ideal situation. Not the ideal. I mean, I, I like to show that, you know, this is, there's always these parts of the companies where nobody touches that. Nobody, nobody knows how this works. That's the stuff I'm like, 
let me add it. I want to see what what is all this stuff. And and let's it's just zeros and ones. A lot of it is to me just zeros and ones in the plumbing and you know reading reading a patient out like uh, a system. It's it's just uh, takes time. Well, maybe you have the experience for that now that, that you're not. It didn't happen overnight, no. And, and that's that was how I got lucky to come into Sweden as I did. Uh, and I don't think I told you yet the, the full yet. story. I, w- I want to hear no. now because you mentioned that your parents were academics. And so I'm, I'm very curious about the transition from academia to uh, to the corporate world. You, you must have been sort of uh, not expected, but, you know, you had the choice of staying in academia and going to the corporate world. Tell me about that transition and what what. Uh, was it what you expected? Mm. Uh, what's what's the significant difference and so on? So I, coming from a couple academics, was ex- not expected to become an academic, but uh, I thought, okay, I gotta, I gotta go, go get a PhD, just like my dad, or or a master's. And uh, what I realized later was that uh, academia was not for me, and uh, I was scared when I didn't know, um, you know, that the the industry um, was actually where I belonged, and I didn't know that at the time, but uh, it, it it was not my expectation. I thought. Um, and, and this is kind of, uh, growing up in the woods of California, deep in the woods, you just kind of don't know what you don't know. And, and, uh, you know, as I've slowly traveled further and further away from home, first going to San Diego and then going to, to other parts of the world, um, it just opens my eyes that, uh, you didn't know anything, you know, young Padawan. So it's, it's been a, a joy to see that in industries actually, uh, where I feel now more comfortable, but, uh, now I'm starting to go back and realize if you want to excel in data science, you do need to read these papers because this is where the hot stuff is now possibly forming. Let's circle around that for a second. <clears throat> First, um, please tell me more about what it was that convinced you that academia wasn't for you. How did you know that? Well, <laughs> I think when I didn't get an offer to to get a master's degree, UC San Diego, they say that um, a bachelor's there is like a master's anywhere else. And I believed it because I was there uh, and, and doing things in my bachelor that uh, I didn't hear a lot of other people doing, like uh, compilers. We were doing compilers and assembly. And uh, after that, I realized I really just need to get working. I want to, I want to work at a company. And I, I just didn't have the passion to go into computer science deeper yet. Um, it was more about connecting with business and uh, just seeing what was going on uh, in the, in the you know, Silicon Valley, which was where I was originally from. And, and I think San Diego, uh, I'll always miss it, but um, I, I had my eyes set on, you know, I need to go learn what's going on in Silicon Valley and, and uh, go back home and, and see what, what's what. I think computer science or <clears throat> data science right now is at a very interesting crossroads where mm. we see people that do have a very solid grasp of the theory and are very practical, have the greatest advantage. You know, there are some people that um, have learned Python and other things out of necessity. Yeah. You know, uh, they, they've learned it in order to do analysis, but they might not be familiar with core computer science uh, concepts, compiler design, data structures, algorithm design, and that kind of thing. Has that sort of helped you, that that background, the computer science background? Do you think it's underappreciated, or how does it fit in? I will never forget when I came to Sweden and I got my first gig. It was in consulting and uh, I, I met my colleagues. And in, in Silicon Valley, you go to a coffee shop, you're going to trip and probably hit a few people who are doing JavaScript. <laughs> but in Sweden, it's, uh, it's a little different. And here, the focus in this company was on uh, mechanical engineering and, and uh, other disciplines. So I introduced myself and they're like, so what are you doing? What are you doing here? And I said, I'm a computer scientist. And they said, oh, you're IT. And I, I think that was a bit, 
I, I want to respect like the IT uh, industry. I think it's uh, I think it's important, but we're everyone is someone else's IT until you're at almost the C level, you know. And and uh, for me, I was like, computer science is different. It's science. And then I realized the longer I've gone in the industry, a lot of it is just plumbing. It's not we're not doing computer science, but your your awareness of these uh, techniques, these algorithms, they are critical to not going down the wrong path with uh, maybe some of the uh, usual suspects of stuff of, of what you could do. But, uh, I, now I wouldn't mind doing it, uh, just, uh, I think it's different. I think now, um, it and business need to, to work closer together. And in the past, I guess in Sweden, you had like totally different companies. You had, uh, Ikea and then you had Ikea it and, and they were almost different cultures. And I'm still seeing that now in certain, in certain circles that I've worked in that, um, they're thought of as like the other. And I think that's, that's been a mistake. And that's why you see them coming back together. And I think it's fantastic. We need to mix up, uh, even more perhaps. Well, isn't it like that when, when a role is not well understood enough, it just becomes, you're the webmaster, everything web, or you're the data scientist, everything data. And now people are sort of splitting it out into ML engineer, ML ops, ML, the, you know, uh, data scientist or mm. researcher and that kind of thing. Um, is that, have you gone from being the one that does everything into going into one of those roles or are you still everything? Uh, so the, the term like would be like a generalist, right? I suppose. Um, I feel like I'm a generalist. And the reason for that is that uh, my career has just literally just kind of touched every little thing just, just so. And I've never gone deep on something until maybe machine learning because it takes so much to, to even just start scratching at the surface. Um, I still don't feel like I would be comfortable just uh, saying, I'm just only going to do machine learning for the rest of my career. Um, I think there's so many interesting problems and, uh, there will be new technologies that we can't even fathom yet. Um, so why limit yourself? But I think for now, for now, I need to focus and yeah, get some more, uh, time, you know, and, and enjoying like spreading the knowledge about what is all this stuff? Cause there's plenty of people that, um, I think are in, in different engineering disciplines and they're realizing that, okay, these are becoming commodified and, and we need to up our skills or I'm just interested in all this data science stuff. And, and what is it? And as I came back into it from years and years of, of doing other things, I've realized some things have changed, but some things have not really changed so much. Like the BI uh, world was very familiar because as IBM was trying to sell in that space, coming back into it, I, I kind of see the same names that when I left, I was like, oh, SPSS is still here. Okay, I kind of I kind of can hang a little bit. But uh, the skills of computer science, they've, they've never uh, taken me wrong. I think it's, if anything, I wish I could uh, do some papers. Um, when I read some of these things, it really inspires me. And, and seeing your work, actually, as you, as you talk about Julia, um, when I saw you at uh, Nordic Data Science Summit back in 2017, I was like, this guy, he knows, he's, you're scratching in that deeper level of like, he's talking about stuff that no one's talking about with Julia Lang versus Python. And I just thought that was so cool. I think that the, <clears throat> the fun part is connecting the dots across different domains, like you were talking about, somebody that both knows computer science and uh, uh, marine biology or, or uh, uh, some other branch of science. And, and even within computer science, being able to do both databases and um, data science and other stuff, it, it really um, allows you a lot more. And you have had the opportunity to both work on existing problems and come up with you know, your own products, because I know you're a bit of an entrepreneur yourself and yes. you've uh, been involved in various projects like that. Tell me a little bit about 
you know, how uh, your experience in both of those fields? Sure. Um, so going in chronological order, we, we start IBM. Obviously, there's a lot of pre-existing product at IBM, and you're just kind of like, here, take this and hold it. Um, a lot of talented people there, but we weren't really, we were not part of the business that's going to create stuff. We were around those people there in research, um, but we, we were kind of uh, productize this thing, and, and we were focusing on uh, healthcare data. Then I left and went to a startup and there you, you don't have anything but the internet and your brain and, and coffee and lots of coffee. Um, and, and, uh, the CEO, he was, uh, ex analytics guy from the BI world. He wanted to do, uh, the quantified self. And he told me his pitch. Um, it was the only job in town. I was in a town in the middle of, I, I want to not say nowhere, but, uh, Petaluma, California is known for eggs and Lagunitas beer, not for startups. But I, I bumped into him. Uh, you know, work Petaluma was this co-working space that I started hanging around in and just made a name for myself there doing some small jobs. And one thing led to another. Um, I think the part of my uh, career that I look back on with the most uh, enjoyment is those times where you really just get a blank sheet of paper and you talk with customers and you build together and collaborate because they they need you. They need us to to make things happen. And they they kind of know what they want. But once you start talking to them, like, oh, yeah, we can do this. We can do that. They realize that they haven't even gotten ambitious enough and they can go even further. Um, but you still have to scope it and, you know, pick some times, time boxes, they say. That's funny, though, <clears throat> that you're helping them sort of uh, express their own problems using words that they might not even know and that kind of thing. Um, what was it? What was it that made you make the shift to begin with, though, from the corporate world to the startup world? And also, you were mentioning before that there was that there there can be pressure in the workplace. What? How is the pressure different from the pressure you feel at a place like IBM and uh, in a startup? So uh, I, I, I love the IBMers, uh, I'll say that, but the, the corporate life was not for me. And, and um, when you're from the Valley, you're going to know the cultures are very different. IBM is an East Coast company. It's from New York. And the Valley is the Valley. You've got Yahoo at the time, uh, Google. Uh, later, you had Facebook. These uh, cultures are very different from each other, but... I think I was ready to jump into open source. Open source is actually one of the most important parts of, of my career. Um, and it changed my life. And, and I have UC San Diego to thank for that, pushing me into uh, Linux and all other things in there. Uh, if I'd not been at university, I don't think I would have found Linux uh, at all or Vim or all these other things. Can you expand on that? I think for a lot of our listeners, they might not be familiar with you know, how companies are different East Coast to West Coast. What is open source associated with there and, and those cultures? IBM had a big uh, open source component. So IBM uh, was building Eclipse IDE. They were building a lot of uh, open source tools. They contributed to the Apache projects that, that we all know and love, including Spark, I believe. Um, but I, I think after four years, I realized I wasn't quite getting anywhere and I needed to try something new. And I'd, I'd kind of seen a lot of my friends move to Google. Um, and I, I just felt like I, I need to, I need to use Git. Part of the problem is as a developer, and we talked about developer experience, this is very critical for us, how we work and what we're able to do and how we're able to work. Um, so when, when I started to realize there, that we have to use ClearCase instead of uh, Git or Perforce or whatever, what have you, you start to be limited in your feeling that, that I have control over uh, my time. And, and as developers, especially young up and coming developers, you're like, I should be building all sorts of startups and rocket ships at this point. Like 
I'm, I, I, and, and that was, I think, the, the not FOMO, but uh, just that feeling like there's more. There's more out there. And I was totally correct. I mean, there was uh, so many startups. I, I went to a bunch of meetups, uh, had a blast, met a lot of people that were much smarter than me, and just tried to gain their knowledge and, uh, and try and likewise to, to return the favor. But uh, open source and, uh, you know, IBM, I think they were they were interlinked. They still are. Um, but when you go to a startup, now you're consuming all of that open source and putting it together in new ways that maybe IBM or these other bigger companies, they're, they're not so concerned about, you know, this kind of um, product or, or this marketplace. But you as a startup, you, you have an idea, the quantified self. So we were focusing on a particular market, which was triathletes. And so we were focusing on the problem of you have Garmin, you have Y things, you have Fitbit and all this data, but it doesn't talk to each other. There's no singular place to put all this data together and do something with it. So the startup was basically uh, this CEO's idea of taking all that data and helping triathletes rest because they never rest enough. They're always right. overtraining. So th these kinds of niches are really interesting to me. And, and uh, that's what startups, I think, are really meant for is to, to find those niches and uh, exploit them faster than the bigger companies can. Um, unfortunately, uh, Apple came out with their Apple Watch. The CEO basically had made a lot of money in his career already. Uh, he had sold his company back to uh, Fair Isaac. And he said, you know, Eric, it's, this is really great, um, but you know, I'm 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 just thinking I'm going to go sell books on Amazon now, and I, and I was like, you know, that's not for me. Like, but thank you, and and I'll always be grateful for Chris. Um, he, yeah, he he gave me a shot when uh, there wasn't really anybody else around up in the North Bay. I was uh, living up there just on a whim, uh, trying to get to get something new going, and uh, yeah, it was perfect timing. But then I had to leave and uh, went back down to the South Bay. Okay, that's funny. So there are some pretty clear parts in your life where you have sort of made grand steps forward and you, you know, you've, you've Leaps done forward and back. Yep. the corporate life at IBM. Now you've done a startup journey. What came after that? Uh, well, I was walking in the hills, uh, the mountains of, of, if you know Silicon Valley, you know Stanford. Mm -hmm. So behind Stanford is the, the mountain range uh, that goes from about, uh, what is that, uh, Pacifica down to, to Los Gatos. And I was uh, recording a birthday message for my sister in Swedish, Spanish, and English. And I, I was never in Sweden, so I, my Swedish was probably terrible at the time. But I was recording this message on a video, and it turned out one of the 50, first 50 employees of Google was watching me. And he, you know, he's retired. He's, he's, he's done. He's done everything. He's just hiking, and he says, uh, hey, can I ask you what you're doing? And we got to talking, and uh, yeah, I found out who he was, and, and it turned out I had an interview at Google the next week, uh, you know, and I was just looking for that next thing. So I had interviews lined up. I interviewed at Facebook, Google, but I think I was really meant to just stay in these uh, kind of teams where I was, I was feeling a little bit more of a smaller culture. And so I ended up working for his friend, Frank. And Frank was, uh, I have to say, humble uh, genius. Uh, he, if you've ever used Nextel walkie-talkie phones, he was one of the contributors to that technology. And it just so happened he was doing a consulting firm and uh, he needed some help on uh, front end. So I was doing uh, Android uh, stuff for him. And there was a small team, about five of us. Um, that was some of the most fun I think I'd ever had. And it, it's just by luck. So if you need a job in Silicon Valley, my tip is just go hiking and, and maybe like start singing. Talk you know? about techie stuff randomly. Exactly. Put some <laughs> stickers on and, and I'm sure you're going to get asked like, Hey, what are you doing? You but know? that was a transition was, would you say that was consulting work you were doing at that point? Definitely consulting in and the Valley. How yeah. was the difference between working on a product in the Valley and consulting? 
I mean, the money was there. <laughs> so <laughs> when you're at a startup, I mean, you're, you're hand to mouth, uh, pretty, pretty much. And, uh, it was a labor of love. And I was, I was learning, uh, kind of analytics. We were using PHP because that was what the CEO wanted, uh, and what CEO wanted he gets. Right. So we did that. But, um, when I got to consulting, um, you know, Frank had this whole package. It was, uh, you know, here's some, some money and a laptop and a 4k monitor and, you know, just get this stuff done. And, and, uh, we had a great time and we launched that app, um, is for a security company. Um, so we launched, we had 10 million downloads, uh, first, first couple of days, I think 10 million downloads, uh, 20,000 concurrent users. And for me, this, this is the real stuff. This is why I think IBM didn't really scratch that itch was like, I'm seeing computational power, like 20,000 concurrent users. That's the kind of stuff that gets you, you know, noted in the Valley. And for him, it was just another day at the office. He's like, oh yeah, this is, you know, and I learned later how that stuff worked, you know, asynchronous, you know, requests are, are more performant than if you try to handle them in a, in a synchronous way and all that kind of stuff. And it reminded me, okay, this is your computer science 101. Um, but, uh, yeah, then, then that, that finished. And, uh, then I had a new gig with them. Didn't work out so well, but that was my last job before I came to Sweden, actually. And, mm. uh, while I was in that gig, uh, this second job, uh, I saw my friend get married in Germany. And so now I start going to, to Germany and I say to myself, I should go to Sweden. I've never been to Sweden. I don't know anything about it. And, and that's, that seems wrong. And little did I know how Swedish my name is, Erik uh, Pettersson. But uh, I didn't speak any Swedish. I didn't know anyone in Sweden. I I knew about uh, IKEA and uh, Volvo. And, and that was about it, actually. But uh, I knew we were from somewhere in Sweden. Now I know, you know, a little bit more, luckily. But um, landed, fell in love with Stockholm. I landed in Stockholm, was there for a week. Um and uh, it feels a lot like San Francisco used to feel in the in the early 2000s. It, oh, that's it, awesome to hear. Tell me more about that. Like, what? what, what? It, it's a Seder, Kniv Seder. It's that feeling of um, you're just walking these streets and there's something special about it. And, and, and I get this all over Sweden, actually. Uh, being half Swedish, um, I see people that look like my family. And it's, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of endearing that, that, uh, you know, I just feel this connection. I, I can't explain it. I, I would never have expected in a million years to move to Sweden. I wanted to move to China or India or go somewhere kind of different, but, uh, it, it happened the way it happened. And, and, uh, yeah, so I went to the wedding, told all my friends, I'm moving to Sweden. And they're like, what? No, you're crazy. Well, why are you moving to Sweden? Like, the, this doesn't make any sense, Eric. And I was like, no, no, I, I really like it. I really like it. And uh, I went back to that job. I quit maybe a month later. And, and it was working out because I was like, oh, this isn't really for me. React JS and front end stuff. I will never do JS again uh, unless it's something new. Like, well, they'll have to convince me. But um, no, I, I came out uh, and that's when I started machine learning. This is when I wanted to focus. And so I uh, had no job and I just went to the coffee shop and I started going on all the certificates that I could. And you'll see it on my LinkedIn. I just had so much time and I just poured myself into everything that I could find. And because I had some money, I could do that. So I was very lucky. And uh, then I, I here's here's the trick. So how do people get into Sweden? I tell them, put your LinkedIn location as Stockholm. And by that Monday morning in Sweden, you'll get some messages. 
So, and, and I know that this is probably because of my name, what happened happened, but I put my LinkedIn location as Stockholm by that Monday morning, I got two offers to, to talk and they say, Hey, Eric, can we and, uh, and I don't know Swedish. So I'm putting this into <laughs> Google translate, like, yeah, yeah, let's, let's meet up. And I got a plane ticket a couple months later, flew in, coordinated a couple interviews, took one of those jobs and the rest was history. <clears throat> that is awesome. That's a cool story. It's crazy. Okay, so you basically got the job and went back and forth in a couple of times and uh, chased your dream and, and got to Sweden. What was the first? What was the first gig you got here in Sweden? So we uh, were a firm, uh, not a big firm, but a uh, sort of French consulting firm. And uh, I remember some people were like, "Why? Why don't you go to uh, this one or that one?" I'm like, uh, "They're all the same." Uh, and, and I learned later that was not true actually at all. So this firm was known for mechanical engineering. So I'm this fish out of water talking about AI and machine learning and CUDA and blah, and everyone's just like, okay, Eric, you're IT, just go, go over there in the IT corner. Um, but I, my first gig was actually in banking. So there was a pitch, um, for a bank in Norway and, uh, I filled this out. There was some document processing, uh, stuff. And I said, okay. Here's what you could do with AI to, to take these documents, process them, do OCR, do, do your thing, uh, classify them. Um, and I won, we, we won a bid and, and, uh, I was like, okay, what's that mean? And so now I'm flying to Norway and I've just landed in Sweden. Now I'm flying to Norway to go to a bank and I've always wanted to work in banking. So that was like, this is pretty cool. Now the problem was I didn't want to move to Norway because I'm not Norwegian. So I didn't feel like I should go to Norway um, just yet. So I, I said, thank you. You know, a bunch of other people took over and I, and I helped and wrote a paper. We kind of fleshed out the offer a little bit more, but um, no, it was uh, then after that I was waiting, I was waiting. And this is the most nervous part of consulting when you're on the bench and you don't have a gig and you just aren't sure, am I, am I going to get deported? This, this was my fear now. So there's this saying in the Valley, like only uh, immigrants make good companies. And I was like, well, I'll just go become an immigrant then because uh, I think I could, I could do something. And I come over to Sweden and uh, now I realize like, it's totally different. Um, it's, it's very, um, being an immigrant, you're, there's a fear factor in my job and I just needed to perform, you know, to a certain level. And uh, I realized that that was kind of silly because everyone was just ha happy to have me. Uh, but in my mind, I was always kind of, there was that pressure uh, to, to make sure that everyone was uh, happy with what I was doing. But uh, no, then I got uh, assigned. I walked into an automotive uh, uh, vendor. I'm sure you could guess which one if we're in Stockholm, but it, it was one of the big ones. Uh, and the rest was history. I was going, going down there and uh, I went in basically, it was like, you know, MacGyvered my way in to fix everything. And it was a joy because I, I really, I got paired up with... Um, uh, I don't know if I can say her name, but, but we'll call her V and V was uh, fresh out of university, KTH. Uh, she had just gotten her master's and she was not a computer scientist. And uh, I'll never forget that. She said, Eric, you, you're a good teacher. And I, I take that as the biggest compliment because I love this stuff, computer science and technology and AI, but if only I'm doing it, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not as good of a feeling if you're not getting something out of it, it's not just about me, it's about the team. 
And uh, so she was building a Vue.js full stack web app. And uh, she had a great time. We built some UIs to control some stuff. Uh, she's since rotated into an industrial PhD and we're still in contact. She's doing the autonomous uh, stuff. So it's very cool, like just small ecosystem, smart people. I uh, just keep bumping into them. But um, yeah, then after that, uh, into into banking a couple of years later. When you got that job at the automotive vendor, did you feel that you had secured your spot here? And I'm also wondering, you know, um, you you integrated into the teams and into uh, you're you're practically Swedish now, if you ask me. <laughs> so I, I have a lot of friends that are working at uh, cool IT companies here. Sweden's such a good IT hub, right? Uh, um, and they have these neat software startups where there are people from all sorts of countries that aren't citizens, and they're you know they're liking it here, and they want to. Uh, Stay in Sweden. Make their mark. Yeah. Yeah. So like, what was, uh, uh, I'm really, uh, I want to hear you talk more about that, that imposter syndrome that some of us, you know, feel, but for people that are uh, immigrants must be even more thinking that they have to overperform and all that kind of stuff. Like what, what, what now, given your current uh, perspective, would you advise people that are immigrants that are, uh, you know, trying to work in data science or wherever and trying to establish themselves here in Stockholm? I have a friend of a friend uh, who who we're trying to get in now, and I think the hardest part is just that first gig. And and we told her this that you know the first gig is the hardest because um, even even UC San Diego is is notorious or as prestigious as it is. When I walk the streets and I and I tell people like, oh yeah, what's UC San Diego? That's that's not the same as it's not going to sound as good as KTH or Lund or you know you know Uppsala or Chalmers. Uh, I've heard great things about Chalmers and. Uh, so it's it's um it's a different world. It's a different market. And uh my advice is uh, just be open to talking with people maybe you would be not talking to usually online and LinkedIn was a valuable resource for me. Um if I didn't have that post and I didn't change my location, I would not be here. I I'm pretty sure. And as the world's opening up and uh you know more opportunities to build come come to the fore, we're going to need that talent. More talent, more people that can do and uh, I think as long as you exude that attitude of of being willing to to come in and, and work together, uh, it, it's only going to help you. And uh, yeah, but that first gig is is the hardest, um, as I've seen. So I'm I'm still trying to actually get that that person a, a shake at uh, coming over mm. because I think uh, I I love Sweden. I really have benefited, uh, and I know I have a different story because of my name. Um, if anything, I get more harassment because uh, why don't you speak Swedish, Eric? What, what what happened? Did your father not raise you correctly? Or yeah. <laughs> so it's it's um it's kind of these questions of uh you know what's what's wrong. But we left in 1850, and and uh, as I said, I, I didn't know anybody, so I just came in blind. And uh, but the people had been welcoming, and I saw that they've been welcoming uh, in, in a lot of circles with everybody, and it's been really cool. I've met people from parts of the globe I've never never gotten to talk to before. But that self doubt that was there in the beginning, or the 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 um the feeling that you had to overperform and and maybe perceptions of glass ceilings were they warranted or were they sort of no, limitations you had put no. on yourself i think it was yeah one of my biggest uh, <laughs> critics is myself and uh, i have a i think i have a high bar uh, of myself and also of others and um i i, I like to keep pushing I, i've heard this a lot in my life where uh, oh you got this now you're set uh no no there's always something next that I want to do or that I can do. And I think, uh, I don't know where that came from, uh, but it's, it's always driven me to do more. If I hadn't had that, I don't think I would have left 
California, let alone, you know, the United States. Because I, I think a lot of people would, would choose maybe, oh, I'll move to Austin or I'll go to uh, New York or something. And, and I just felt, I just got to do something different. And when I saw Sweden and, and in particular Stockholm, I, I just, there was some feeling that I can make this work. And I had some friends that literally told me, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. And later they ate their words. And and for me, maybe that was what drove me, like to prove something. Now you're posting on LinkedIn every day. Now it's pictures <laughs> of, you know, downtown, you know, Stockholm and, and yeah. beautiful shots. And, and they came over, actually. They were at uh, Lush. Is it Lush? Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. He, he's, uh, he's over at Google. And um, I love it because I, I do all my AI stuff on my own machines, uh, not on the cloud because I, I don't want to pay that bill. But he said, Eric, why are you doing all this stuff? Like you should be using use GCP. Come on. Like yeah. I'll give you some credits. Like mm -hmm. just, just put your stuff on here. And I was like, come on, man. Like, you know, it's different. Like I, I've always lived on, on, I guess the edge of computing because it's cheaper, but it's also the thing that's the hardest to do. There's mm -hmm. this, uh, there's dearth of talent of people who actually know how those data centers are built. Mm -hmm. How do you build these racks? How do you build the, you know, interconnectivity? Uh, this is now, I think the, the next hard part for web three, uh, we didn't go into that yet, but you know, what is web three and, uh, is it a, is it just a buzzword? I think it mostly, mostly can be, but there's some interesting technology. I was talking with Goron about, um, zero tier and, um, you know, this, uh, tail scale stuff where you're mm -hmm. building private mesh internet, um, for whatever purpose you want. It could be data science, you know, private data science, uh, infrastructure that doesn't require you to pay a bunch of money through the nose. Right. Oh, we should get into that. I think there's a good segue here because if we're going chronologically here now, you have... Uh, wait, wait, wait. Wait. <clears throat> wait, we need to get into the deep. So right now the topic was like basically moving from US to Sweden. Mm. Your painting at it, it was everything so peachy and nice. Oh, oh. All right, so... <laughs> it wasn't. So what was the hardest part? Because you didn't just land that here, right? You got the job and et cetera. It was a, a little bit no. of, of a struggle as... You and me, we met 2017 in August 11th, I believe it was. I just came back from holidays. And I remember the discussion then and a few, the, the several months after. So what was the hardest part? Ooh. Uh, so the, the, the way I met Goran uh, was, was also dumb luck. I, pro I posted on LinkedIn again and I said, Hey, I'm Eric. I'm, I'm in Stockholm. Uh, I'm, you know, working in computer science and data and stuff. And if anybody's around and, you know, I, I don't even think I said that. I just said, hi. And Goran first up replies, nice to meet you, Eric. Hey, let's grab lunch sometime. And I was like, lunch. This is the difference between the Valley and, and I would say Sweden, especially, uh, you know, Sweden that, uh, no one's going to buy you lunch. If you just show up, maybe, maybe they would, uh, but, uh, this, this stuck out and he bought me lunch. He invites me to the Nordic data science summit, uh, sight unseen almost. And, and I told my story, you know, I'm, I'm kind of just kicking around. I, I, you know, had not quite gotten, uh, you know, my footing yet. So, um, I think the hardest part was just keeping at it. There were a lot of people I watched drop off and move somewhere else. Um, it yeah, was, it was I, tough. I was not going to that part. I was going for, for, um, how hard was it to, to, uh, to get all the documents that you need? You know, okay. uh, that was the part because <laughs> I believe there is a story here to be told. Uh, oh, I think yeah. that, uh, your story is so fantastic because it's, uh, so first of all, we are so lucky to have you here, right? I'm, I'm feeling lucky to be with you guys. Right. So, so, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a great example and, and of what should be happening. You know, uh, the Nordic is uh, the cradle of innovation and has been like this for many decades now, but it's, um, but we cannot forget that it was also because of, uh, 
this pool of talent from all over the world that came and built companies like Nokia's and Ericsson's and et cetera, right? And uh, right now the situation is a little bit uh, opposite. Is, is, uh, so we need to attract talent. Certainly. Right? But the bureaucracy around it, it's quite hard. Yes. Right, it's scary, and, and exactly. And uh, I know, and we have the, the, the we have discussed this before. And I um, and I wish that some of these politicians will sit down on this table someday, and they would just basically plain, honestly say, like, "Hey, we have a plan. We want to attract people, and we're going to make this easy for them to come to Sweden because Sweden is a land of opportunity. We need a lot of people like you here." And we need to make it very easy for those people to come here. We need to attract them. And to stay, yeah. Right, and to stay. That is a different uh, story by itself. (laughs) But first of all, just to get everybody, you know, to move here. And that is a bureaucratical nightmare because uh, it's not bureaucratical nightmare, but it takes time. It's hard. First, you need to get the social uh, security number. Then you need to get like the, um, uh, in order to get the social security number, you need to have a job. So if you don't have a job, you don't have social security number. But you cannot get a social security number if you don't get a job. So it's a loophole, yeah. right? So you need basically to get like a strong employer to get you to please for your case in order for you to get it faster. And then once you get in the system, then it's easy. It's getting easier. Mm, okay. Tell easier, me, what, what, right? what, are, what are the so tough parts? Well, uh, let's just, I, I just want to add also that like in, in many of these companies, the IT companies of Sweden, and uh, I don't want to be say like Stockholm is a little Silicon Valley because it's it's we're not copying anything here. But um, if you want to be an entrepreneur in Sweden, uh, the barriers aren't as great as you would imagine, especially given with how little people are incentivized in university to go for entrepreneurship. You know, uh, when I was in university here in, in Sweden, they were like, "Go to Google. That's the coolest place to be." They weren't saying. Run a start, co- a company. Run, start a company like mm-hmm. they do in the Baltics and those places mm-hmm. where maybe there aren't big companies like Volvo and stuff to hop onto. Your only choice is to start a company. But at the IT companies that are here in Stockholm, like 50% of the people are from, you know, everything from uh, uh, Belarus, uh, Romania, Greece, Spain, and other places. And we need all of those people to fill out the, the talent pool, like you're yeah, saying. Yeah, exactly, Gora. because we, we are missing quite a lot of talent. And if you see the discussion in the Nordics in the past three, four, five years has been like, hey, we are missing a lot of talent. I, I think it was in Sweden, it was stated that 77,000 IT professionals are needed right now. That was a statement from three years ago. Right now, I think it's even more because we have become a region that is exporting talent and not importing talent, mm-hmm. and which is very bad if you want to be an innovative country, uh, uh, region in a country. Yeah, it's more embarrassing when people are saying we want to come to Sweden yes. and they're not able exactly. to. Exactly. And so probably if Eric right now goes to Silicon Valley, say like, hey guys, I'm having a, this is a wonderful country. We have all of these things and et cetera. You know, there is a plenty of job. I think that, and there was like a, two people now from United States on Data Innovation Summit. They really like the culture. They would like to move, but it's not an easy process. So if you make it easier, it's going to be making, we're going to get more talent because yeah. there are more people that like to have more quality type of living and they're good. So Eric, tell, so you got the stuff now, now it's uh, smooth sailing, right? Uh, I guess. Or this is the thing. That's like, what I, I, I'm, I'm uh, from outside. So I, I guess it's all smooth. Um, 
I think it's a good segue to say I'm the ambassador to Sweden for University of California, San Diego. And so I mentor students constantly and I tell them, we've got jobs out here. Would you like to move here? And it's a big, tall order to move across the world for them. And there's also a lot of things going on in the United States. So you're from, from University of California perspective, they, they've got a lot of stuff going on. And I said, well, hey, we've got stuff going on here too. Um, but, but the system was daunting and, uh, I made, I made mistakes. So first mistake came to the country, flew in on a tourist visa, uh, got my job. I thought, <laughs> and then I started waiting to get ready to work. Now everything's sorted out because, you know, they basically found out that I was there and they said, you have to leave. And this is the system now telling me you need to go back to California. Now I never got that quote or that message because I was already back in California, but luckily I'd put my home address as my boss's address at, at his office. And uh, he he said, can I open your letter? And I said, yeah, of course, please. I'm, I'm in California. Please open my letter. And he said, oh, you're not supposed to be. You can't come back right now. So I had to finish this paper for this bank, you know, in Norway uh, on the wrong time zone and, and wait for something to happen. And it was very scary. And I always felt like I don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, I can't I still can't read Swedish. This is something I'm working on um, going to Folkenvisitet. You can, you know, uh, go to, to Swedish courses, but uh, it takes time. And I, I think some people are too quick to say you don't need Swedish. I highly disagree. I, I, disagree uh, I think well. it's critical, actually, for certain, <clears throat> especially if you're going to start a company. You need to read those contracts because they mostly are not going to come in in English. So uh, there's, there's a lot of barriers to entry. I think my story is actually very, uh, by retrospect, easy. There were other stories next to me. I won't put those names out there because I don't know if they want me to say this, but um, they were almost, I mean, kicked out and, and uh, unfairly, I would say. And, and they were, they're now at Microsoft and, and very talented uh, individual, but they were almost kicked out on, on, uh, I don't know. It, Technicalities. It, it, it seemed that way. Um, and, and I was also scared cause I changed jobs before my, uh, two years was up. So this was very tricky. I had a month left on my visa and I needed to now, um, change visas in the pandemic for the new, like renewing the visa with a new company. Now, luckily, um, you know, my employer had the strongest team, uh, Ernst and Young, and they handled everything perfectly. Um, I slept better at night once that was done. Uh, and ever since it's been smooth sailing, but, um, I know that that's a, that's not always the story. And I was still sweating because I, I, I just, uh, you, you want to stay, you really want to stay, but you just don't know what's going to happen. And I read these stories of Americans uh, along with many, many other people, um, who, who on a technicality, um, didn't, didn't get it. And I didn't get my person number for months. Uh, I didn't have a bank, you know, here. So I was paying with my U S card and paying the, you know, Forex fees. But, um, I can say, you know, strongly it was all worth it. But in, in, you know, in the moment, I just felt like, what am I doing? You know, I need, I need my person number. I need this bank card. And, and it just, it's just one thing after the other. Man, that weighs you down. That's, uh, I, I had nightmares after finishing university for years where I was thinking that they were going to call me back and said that I had messed up and that I didn't get credits and all that kind of stuff. And it must be the same thing for you where like you, you think you've done the right thing, but you don't know and you're waiting for a call and it's yeah. screwing with you and you're trying to plan what am I going to do six months from now? And, and it's funny because, it, you know, getting that letter for you is like basically stop being productive. You haven't filled in the papers yet. You're not allowed to do any good work. I, I had some great friends help me. Um, and and I, I also think Google 
uh, Google's got that, you know, lens where you can translate stuff that got me through a lot of paperwork. AI got me through a lot of this stuff. AI got you into Sweden. AI helped me get into Sweden. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. It was, uh, I can't read Swedish still. There's, you can last a little gram, man, uh, mm-hmm. so on. Cool. All right. Well, cool. So great. Now you're in Sweden, you've gotten a couple of jobs and you are currently working in, uh, my dream. Your dream, and so uh, you've been telling me that you've always wanted to work in fintech, in finance. Is that something that you've been keeping your eye on for a while? Um, have you? How did you? Get, how did you get into that field? And what was the beginning of that? Let's start from the beginning. Uh, f- so I would say not so much fintech. So I, I think this is a very important distinction. I I, um, I like finance mm. and. I think, uh, I will never forget this. I had an interview with a company, I won't say where, and uh, it was here in Sweden. And I, I said, no, thank you. And I'm, I'm going somewhere else. I'm going to a financial firm. Uh, and they said, oh, which fintech firm? And I never replied. I, I'm, I'm not being cagey, but I just, it wasn't their business. Like we had had a good interview and, and I thanked them, but uh, it was not fintech. And I know that this is very strange. Like a lot of people would wonder, why do I want to go in there? It had to do with my university days in computer science and the financial crisis. So for me, my uh, financial history, my father um, basically got cancer uh, twice. The first time in the American system, he had, uh, you know, uh, experimental drug and uh, beat it. Uh, but the second time he unfortunately did not. Um, and uh, we we are OK. We're OK now. He had a, a pension through uh, federal government. But uh, there were many times we, we were not uh, OK. And uh, that always struck me that, that my dad's so, so intelligent. My mom, you know, they're both trained scientists and, and yet we're still, we're still kind of, everything's not quite uh, maybe as good as it could be or should be. And, and I wondered with this financial crisis and the housing market, what is all this stuff? Again, this engineering mindset of what is all this stuff? Let me, let me break this down. And uh, for me, I was graduating from uh, university. I had just gone to Lehman Brothers that uh, summer before uh, to visit. And we did this um, like bankers West Coast uh, thing through the inter- international, um, you know, um, investment banking club that I was a part of. And uh, my, my ambition was to become a quant because that was what computer scientists do in banking um, and, and become a quant. But 2008 hit and the Fed came in and all the rest that happened. And, and this company that had billions and billions and billions of dollars, uh, it didn't have any billions of dollars anymore. And I just visited them. And this guy had a Rolex and everything seemed really great. What was it? What just happened? So that kind of marked the rest of my career and my life, the, this moment of the financial crisis. And I've, I've been very uh, focused on finance ever since, because for me, this is a, this is a domain that touches everything. Uh, everything needs money, whether uh, you're, you're investing uh, for the future or you're borrowing to, to pay something down or you're trying to invest uh, to, to get ahead. All of this stuff is uh, requiring you know, currency, money. And, and this concept, it was very different from, from computer science, which to me was quite straightforward. Zeros and ones and you know, the arithmetic units and building the, you know, the electrons to go this way or that. But with finance, there's a lot of uh, dark money, black pools. And these things fascinated me a lot. And I was actually studying the capital markets while I was supposed to be studying for my finals. Uh, instead, I was just watching the markets and like, look at all this stuff. This is, this is incredible. 
Um, and so since I've, I've just always uh, wanted to go into banking. I was When I was at IBM, I would visit the Banking Center of Excellence. I was trying to tell them about CUDA and, and NVIDIA. And uh, I remember this very distinctly. Uh, Jennifer, I think was her name. Jennifer uh, was the head of the Banking Center of Excellence at, at IBM. And I said, oh, Jennifer, this, this, this stuff's going to be hot. This was in 2000 and uh, I want to say 2006. No, no, 2009 was when I graduated. And so soon after, and I said, this, this GPU stuff's going to take off. GP, GPU is what we called it at the time, right? And uh, she's like, Eric, thanks so much for telling me about this. Um, you know, this, this is going to try and compete with our mainframes, but we're good. We're good. We're going to, we're fine. This is not a problem. She's kind of right, you know, in a sense, because we're still using mainframes. But uh, GPUs have definitely grown in use, and we've seen this uh, proliferation. Um, you know, if you just even ignore crypto and all of that stuff, it's been fascinating. And NVIDIA has just been uh, amazing to watch. And the CUDA library that I was so fascinated with and parallel processing, this was something completely different from the CPUs that you grew up with and you were, you know, oh, I got the latest Intel, this and that. Oh, no, it was it was so cool. Okay, so, tr so I'll make the distinction, fintech and finance. Yeah, yeah. And now you're in finance, but you are still dabbling in fintech, or maybe at least you, you, you are a, a hobbyist and a, an, a corporate uh, type at the same time. So I'm, I'm, maybe I'm doing a disservice. Like I, I, think, <clears throat> I think what I see is that um, when, when Apple uh, went to go do a credit card, they went to Goldman. They did not do their own and like build a bunch of stuff, uh, you know, sight unseen. They went to a bank, Goldman. And uh, so too, do you need that, uh, that foundation for banking? But fintech for me is more of like the, uh, the customer facing layer, you know, Swish and Bankidea and these, these kinds of uh, bits and pieces. But uh, everybody wants to, to be seen as cool and, and have the latest idea of what's coming next. Um, I think the challenge now is, uh, you know, with crypto and Web3 and all of this stuff, what is all that, you know, going on there? Um, but for me, finance uh, and capital markets, so focusing on, on actier or, or stocks. Um, this for me, I think is very important. Um, and for me, this concept that you can, as someone off the street, buy access to a company and get that, f that financial footing. Whereas, uh, before maybe you had to work, you know, uh, to, to earn every dollar that you're ever going to get here, you had a chance to get some equity and growing up with, with, uh, the housing market being what it was in Silicon Valley, I knew I was never going to buy a house unless I was going to basically be indebted for the rest of my life. And maybe because of what happened with my, you know, family growing up, I just didn't feel very interested in, in taking on that kind of responsibility. Or I just, I mean, I just didn't really want to borrow money at that level. Cause I think a house, even 2005, uh, we were looking at, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and it just didn't make any sense. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I was living next to Netflix in a old apartment and, uh, you were still paying 4,000 us a month. And, oh, uh, and that was the deal they, they, they wanted to redo stuff and, and charge 6,000. And I said, no, no, it's fine. Just leave it like this. But okay. So then we have capital markets, we have uh, stock markets and other kinds of, uh, markets where, you know, when I think of FinTech, I'm thinking just of <clears throat> modern services, I suppose. I guess that's the user facing layer, if, if you will. Um, but, uh, you've dabbled in AI and, and markets and that kind of thing. Is that, is that, uh, something, one of the reasons I got started that I really love computers now is that it democratizes access to things that were inaccessible before. You can become a music producer now. You can work in, um, uh, you know, 
theoretical physics, lots of stuff that you had to have access to basically the most expensive uh, labs and resources in the world before. Now anybody can work with, and it's a little bit the same with, with finance data. You can lab with that stuff at home and, and do advanced projects. Um, do you see that that, that is where uh, a lot of the innovation will be coming from? Uh, is that something that, that you're, you're sort of fascinated by, or do you think that it will be still for a long time led by the incumbents? I guess uh, when you say innovation and incumbents, I, I guess I'd have to ask like maybe who you're speaking about, like, because uh, I know here it's Nordnet, that's, that's the one, and Avanza. These are, these are like the two major. Well, then uh, I guess it has to be three tiers here because you have the incumbents, the the, the big Swedish banks, mm. uh, Nordia, Swedbank, and so SCBN forth. And, yeah. And, yeah. Then you have the internet native banks, let's say, that mm. were sort of born afterwards, like uh, Avanza and so forth. And then you have uh, small companies that are uh, sort of grassroots. And I don't even mean companies. I, I mean, uh, everything from the individual that can, uh, uh, you know, manage their own assets and, and Web3 type stuff. Um, like these uh, DeFi, you know, sure, almost nomadic, <laughs> yeah, and that kind of ideas stuff. of finance. Yeah, I, I have some friends, and they're they're big on that. Uh, and for me, it's a it's a field I struggle to to figure out how it will work. Um, and this is why I think uh, finance gets kind of uh, stereotyped. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, smoking jackets and a lot of, uh, fancy stuff. And, and actually for me, it's all about saving and, and investing and protecting, you know, myself or, or people around me, um, and understanding this uh, system. Uh, you know, for me, it was like the federal reserve was a kind of a revelation, uh, how to, how that worked and the fact that we bake in inflation by design. Um, but as far as incumbents, uh, I think it's, yeah, it's never been a better time to build in, in the space and try something new. It's fraught with a lot of maybe problems. Uh, we saw Terra Luna just last week uh, collapse. I can say that, um, and and UST along with it. And uh, now they're going to do a new chain. And uh, frankly, I don't understand. I think some of that is just um, if if you look at it from the classical capital market sense, it's almost like uh, the penny stocks. Um, and, and you're told, you know, you can trade these, but you have to sign this thing. And, uh, you know, you, you swear that you, you've done all the stuff. And, you know, I, when I fill in these forms that, that I understand this is risky. Um, you don't really have to fill out so many forms with some of those other systems. And, and this is kind of where, um, there's this argument, like we have to innovate by getting out of these, these systems of, of ways of doing. And, uh, in some ways that's, uh, how it's always been. I mean, Uber, uh, is one example where they would go to a jurisdiction and they would just start doing something and whether that's good or bad, I'll, I'll leave that for another topic outside, but it, it's something of note that I've seen that, um, companies and, and startups will come in and they just, they will just start doing something and uh, sometimes it's better and uh, innovates and allows for uh, things that that couldn't have changed any other way um, I'm talking about specifically the taxi medallion system in New York that was a great example where it just just seemed wrong uh, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense that these few things you know kind of converge and control <laughs> who can pick somebody up in a taxi when I was in UC San Diego I actually pitched a like an uber like startup where on Facebook you would say I'm gonna go to uh, LA is anybody else going to LA and you would all come together as friends and ride in each other's cars but little did I know I wasn't ambitious enough that you're gonna get in somebody else's car you're gonna go in someone else's car and, and go ride and, and use a phone app and control all of this and it's been uh, quite fascinating that what people now are accepting as uh, you know oh, yeah I'll get in 
somebody's car. I mean, he's got five stars or, you know, it's just a very different market now. Yeah. Um, I mean, <clears throat> I, th I think one of the things now that, uh, uh I think that blockchains and these kinds of things are really pushing it forward more than others with, with tokenizing real world assets. And the most, the, the thing that most people, uh, associate with blockchains are, uh, intangible things like coins or whatnot, but, you know, you could tokenize, um, land, uh, uh, and sell, uh, uh, your carbon credits or whatever it is. Uh, and I think we're a bit away from that, but, and, and I wonder if it's because, um, the, the, uh, regulatory infrastructure that exists for classical financial markets is just too stifling for new ideas, new forms of risk, new forms of savings. Like let's say for example, that you wanted to invest, you wanted to save for your pension by buying land and saving it to increase biodiversity and capture carbon, something like that. Mm. And, uh, and, and okay, so I'm a bank and I'm like, I want to help you save for your pension. Let's create a pension fund that invests in land that way. And, and you can give me your money and I'll, and I'll save it for your pension. That investment vehicle, you know, would be subject to the oversight of, of the financial uh, regulators and that maybe they would say, no, that's too risky or something like that. Do you think that that's like uh, prudent? Is is it stopping innovation? Uh, or, that's what I'm wondering if we're going to see those kinds of cool new services for users uh, from the traditional financial incumbents or, or if we're going to find them from other directions. I, I don't think it's uh, I don't think that's the, the issue, actually. I think what I, I saw a post uh, once and, and I think it's it snapped my attention that I kind of agree that um, this is a generational issue. There's so much uh, gatekeeping in finance. There always was, and there always maybe will be. But now the new generation, they want to make, they, they can't make sense of all this stock market stuff and up and down and, you know, sell, sell, sell. So they did what? They built their own system that they understand and that they can, you know, do their thing in. And Wall Street Bets is uh, kind of one of these worlds that they, they've they um, coalesced and organized in a way that's uh, very different. And uh, in some cases, it really it, it hits the nail on the head. And, you know, Melvin Capital is, uh, I don't know, maybe no more. And uh, tell for the people that are listening what Wall Street Bets is. I got my wow. Diamond Hands prize Diamond for having Hands. been part of it yes. since before the GME story. But what what is Wall Street Bets? So on Reddit, right, uh, is this uh, if you don't know Reddit, just Reddit.com. But in, in each of these subreddits, uh, which are like sub forums, there's different uh, discussions. And Wall Street Bets was one of these uh, places where where now the, the hot thing is not uh, used to be, you know, you'd Google on, uh, I think it was SeekingAlpha.com and, and some of these other older sites, Yahoo Finance had some forums. But the new thing is now talking in Wall Street Bets or these other subreddits. And uh, so they would coalesce and, and uh, organize and get the diamond hands and, and all this stuff. And I, I'm, I'm a little bit older than maybe the average uh, person who's posting in those forums, but it's very cool to see uh, because they're just making it their own because that's that's uh, what they're capable of doing. They've but organized. You're saying it's cool to see. I think a lot of older people would say that it's it's garbage. It's just What's kids. Garbage about well, it? they're just standing. They're speculating, making fun. GME is not a real thing. It you know it was Melvin Capital speculating. Of course, of course, they're speculating. That's that's part of the. This is actually a question I wanted to have for you. Like, there's there's two sides. There's investing mm -hmm. and speculation. We need both. I would say to have markets. Otherwise you, you, you'll just have a bunch of people holding, huddling, and yeah. uh, you, you'll never have a seller and things will just kind of get weird from there, I would say. 
I mean, I think it's hard to invest without making a gambit at all. If an investment is given, it's then everybody would go for it and the markets would. I think this is one of the things that, you know, you and I were talking about uh, uh, trading and Forex and why I think Forex is different than other markets. Uh, 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 I agree. Trading um, uh, coins. Mm. (laughs) Because if you compare it with something like wheat that has an... Uh, maybe not like an absolute intrinsic value, but it does have an intrinsic value in a sense that you can quantify what somebody would be willing to pay for it at any given moment, something like that. Uh, The the, uh, Forex markets have practically infinite liquidity. They don't have any intrinsic value. They have uh, instant... changes, uh, you know, between, uh, uh, values. Yeah. The ticks are smooth. Yeah. They're super smooth. And so, uh, you know, when I was working on AI on Forex markets, it's basically like working with white noise because it's so perfect. Or Brownian motion. Or Brownian motion or anything (laughs) like that. Yeah. Compared to stocks where, you know, if a whale does something to a stock, it, it will affect the stock. And, uh, you know, the stock is related to product cycles and uh, the stock is related to the market. But w- Forex was, was very different. But you've dabbled in that sort of area. What, what, like, where have you been focusing? I, I always stuck to um, stocks because uh, for me, Forex, uh, I, I don't understand it, actually. And, and now that I live in Sweden, I really do need to understand it because uh, the crown and the United States uh, dollar exchange rate. But um, I, I think I always just knew intrinsically. Uh, oh, sorry. Just noticed. Uh, I, I just noticed that uh, for me, uh, companies, I knew companies. And, and if I'm buying NVIDIA, like that's just an example, I knew what I was getting into. When I buy the uh, Japanese yen versus the, you know, British pound. I, I guess I'm buying some sort of thing, but it's still so abstract. Uh, but I know that the market is very liquid, um, and and you want that liquidity when you're making these models, these these kind of abstractions that you're trying to predict off of. Um, when something is illiquid, this becomes actually like a sparse matrix. You're you're just kind of left really guessing what what am I going to do to to predict what's happening next? And you just don't have as much information. And some of the things that scared me about finance was the assumptions that go into financial models. Um, a lot of Gaussian stuff is just kind of assumed like, yeah, this is Gaussian. It's fine. And, I, and I'm like, why? I don't in no other part of my scientific, uh, you know, learning was I was I just told, oh, yeah, this is how it goes and just accept it. Mm-hmm. But in financial modeling, it, it's just kind of how it's been. And sometimes that works. But when it doesn't work, um, one of my favorites is LTCM, long-term capital management. They were uh, Nobel Prize winners and uh, MIT, this, that, and the other thing. Geniuses, legitimate geniuses who wrote papers that everybody was citing. Uh, Black Scholes, uh, many, many uh, brilliant things came out of them. They went belly up. They're gone. Uh, they they were picking up pennies in front of a steamroller, is the saying. And uh, I, I'm much more on the side of uh, value investing. I know uh, we could go down many different roads in, in finance, but um, I think the reason I'm into stocks is because it's, it's easier to value for me. And value investing is, for me, makes sense. But let me ask you one question there, because there's, there's a pretty clear dichotomy to me. You were saying before the difference between uh, saving and investing and speculating. Mm. If you have an engine that's supposed to regulate the market and oversee it to make it predictable, is that at odds with, you know, the, the 
those two sides of the coin. I guess I wouldn't say makes it predictable, <clears throat> but it helps you. Um, so Forex having a smooth tick, the more data you have, um, kind of the easier it can be to say what's going to happen next. Whereas if you have like a jump step, um, you, you might uh, have more difficulty. And this is what happens in very illiquid stocks. And that's usually where you can make a lot of money um, when you have illiquid uh, assets, but you have to have diamond hands, <laughs> you know, so to speak. Whereas um, if you have a liquid market, you can uh, build up a position easily. You can uh, exit that position easily. Usually the, the easy part is to build a position and, and uh, have, you know, a holdings. But if you are trying to get out of a stock and, and suddenly that market has disappeared, uh, like take Terra Luna, who's buying this thing? No one's buying it. So the price will just collapse. Mm -hmm. And this is the stuff that I get very interested in, um, the psychology of the markets. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, I think, the the edge that you're trying to build is you're trying to understand the psychology of something that is not a human. It's it's a market and it's all a lot of the participants. But it, it's not about uh, making but it, it more very human like. Right. Isn't that the most annoying part that I think fear a lot of and uh, yeah. greed? Yeah. Yeah. No, but I think it's the most interesting, though. If, if, if it was so easy, I don't think I would be into it. Um, I hate to paraphrase it, but I, I felt like a lot of what I did in the last 10 years was plumbing, a lot of plumbing, just these bits are not flowing this way that we want. These bits need to go this way, that way. And it's just, it's just, okay, the zeros and ones need to go this way or that way, or use this API and everything's working great. Um, but when, when I got into computer science, one of my biggest disappointments was it didn't feel like natural science with natural science. You had mysteries. And there still are mysteries, and maybe this is why I'm not such a you know super you know focused you know, master's degree computer scientist. But um, for me, the interesting things were were like how how do we have all these uh, naturally occurring patterns in nature? And some of the most interesting people I met uh, in the sciences were trying to use uh, biology to build things. So they were taking the patterns from nature that were strong, and then incorporating that into their 3D printed you know materials, patterns, and things to increase rigidity or get a property that they were after. Um, I find that stuff to be kind of at the core of like, what is all this stuff, nature and physics and, you know, the universe. And, um, and that's why markets maybe are one of those things. Like it's, it's its own entity. It's, it's, and this is why AI in the markets has always been at the very forefront. They've had a lot of money poured in um, and we still haven't figured it out. We still, we still don't know. You can't predict everything. When I look at these, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the alpha sources and stuff, they don't exist anymore, but I, you know, I've, I've looking through some of the newer books that talk about, uh, uh, the different analytical ways of, of, uh, um, looking at markets, they still are very, uh, classical statistical approaches there is like a brief mention of neural networks and they're like, yeah, it might work, but here are, here's my super advanced moving average mm. or something like yeah, that. Or a signal. Uh, yeah, yeah. Some super, super, uh, I wouldn't say convoluted. They're all just different ways of doing the moving average, uh, drawing lines Good between moving them. Average. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But more or less sophisticated, right? So this is like a really sophisticated version of it that, that uses the square root of some, uh, inverse of some, uh, you know, different parts of the signal, but <clears throat> I have never seen, I've seen people, uh, from finance try ML, but I've, I haven't mm. seen as many computer scientists use things like WaveNet or other signal processing approaches. 
uh, that's true in in finance or if they're using it at least they're not writing about it a lot publicly so they're busy making money maybe I don't know. <laughs> that that must be it i i scoured uh the west coast quant scene so there was a there was a after university i was in san francisco and going to these meetups for uh, mathematicians and it was all about cuda and quants and uh, ai at the time which was just you know, using cuda to to run processing stuff faster there was no talk of neural nets at all um, and I would try to decipher, what are these guys talking about? What are these people talking about? Um, and it, it was, as you say, a lot of, um, Cuda black statistical, a lot of calculate the black shoals <laughs> faster yeah. and, uh, with more data so that you can just, uh, buy that stock or, you know, short this or synthesize that. Um, and, and part of the reason that, uh, I get so, so fascinated with all of this is that it, it reminds me of the stuff my father would do. So he, we would talk about Kalman filtering and Fourier transforms. These are the things I heard as a kid growing up. He's like, check this out, Eric. Here's a Fourier transform. And I'm like, yeah, dad, whatever. I'm not going to be like you. <laughs> mm. And now I'm looking back like, ah, maybe I should have paid attention. Um, you know, when I was sitting on his lap for all those years, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's, uh, the interconnects between all the different disciplines and who should use what, when I, I don't try to prescribe, you know, uh, like this tabular data stuff where we say, uh, neural nets don't belong on tabular data and, uh, tab tabular data runs, you know, the, the world. And I said, so you're going to build your uh, autonomous vehicle on, on spreadsheets. Yeah. No, of course not. So where, where's AI, you know, in the mix between the classical statistical approaches and then when you need to actually step up and go to neural nets, it's, it's interesting. You've made a big transition from, I think, uh, is a, a more ML engineering or rather a, an engineering role, you know, with, with all your analytics background into something that is more AI focused. Uh, and, and, you know, you've said now that you've had an AI interest for a long time, uh, it has this interest, um, it accelerated when you came to Sweden. Uh, it, was it, was it very given or was it something that you pursued explicitly? Um, I, I hate to say it, but, uh, when I came to Sweden and maybe it was the firm that I was at, I felt like I was back in time in some ways because the market uh, here is all about windows. And maybe this was my bias coming from Silicon Valley. Uh, I know you're a big Windows guy, so so like I'm being careful here. But uh, I had moved on from Windows, and I was fully in Linux, fully on like a Mac. You're usually going to have a Mac, and you're going to build all your stuff on there. And it was it was a big transition. And I use Windows now; it's not a big deal. I, I don't mind. Um, we've got um, you know the tools with Linux inside, but I, I felt like I was fighting um, an attitude when I would talk about data and even not even AI, but just talking about let's measure this stuff. Um, I was in a team, we had a set of microservices that were, you know, doing a bunch of automation to uh, run this truck in the automotive um, field. And we would put this truck in the matrix and drive it down the road and then measure a bunch of, of things. And uh, I said, your services keep, you know, crashing. Uh, let's put some uh, Kibana dashboard so I can see the logs and we can see together as a team, where is the crash? Where is the problem? And uh, they kind of were like, I don't get it. 
I don't they were busy. I, I get it. Like I was brought there because we needed to get to work. And so I just did it. And I loved that, like having the freedom to just say, okay, nobody understands the value I'm trying to say, but I've got the freedom to go build what I'm talking about. And I use this tool and you know, shout out to Juju. Um, I know there's a lot of tools out there, but I was lucky enough to be in a, a part of the, the company where I talked to the IT team and I said, IT team, how do you instantiate servers in this company? Because I'm brand new and I don't know anything. And he said, well, um, we don't really have anything for you. You could use Ansible. You could, uh, you know, do this or, or you could use Juju. And I'd never heard of Juju in my life. And uh, it turned out it was from Canonical, people of uh, Ubuntu fame. Was that because they had OpenStack or why did they let you use Juju? They didn't. Well, they, they were, <clears throat> they, we were so isolated from them. We were in research and development. So we were in a different world. But they were telling us what they were kind of using under the hood uh, in their area. And it turned out they were doing a lot of deep learning stuff and they had it on-prem. Mm. So it was really cool to see. And uh, But they were using Juju and uh, Metal as a service to instantiate private clouds to run Slurm and do HPC work. They were using Slurm. They were even? using Slurm nice. and they Juju-fied. They wrote a Juju charm to instantiate and configure Slurm across a whole bunch of stuff. No Kubernetes? No Kubes. No Kubes. <laughs> I know. I know. It was very. It's very different. And I nice. love that. I love seeing that they weren't afraid to go against the common knowledge that of course you must Kubernetes yeah, <laughs> because they just wanted to get the work done. And Kubernetes is fantastic, but it's complicated. And uh, so I, I said, okay, Juju. Okay. And I looked at what we had. We had some VMware ESXi servers. Now I had used VMware in my home back in California because it was free and you could just install it and start doing some virtual machines. Um, and I started using Juju to instantiate stuff in that virtual machine changed the game, changed the game. And we were instantiating an ELK stack. I will never forget this. I did Juju deploy ELK and went to lunch and I thought, okay, this is, I've never seen something work. You know, whenever you see a new tool and you try it out and you read the readme and you're like, all right, this is not going to work, but I'll, I'll just do this and I'll come back. Uh, so about 40 minutes went by and I came back from my thing. It was done, configured. I pushed data in and I saw the data coming out of the Kibana dashboard. And it was like, I didn't need Amazon. Sometimes when you do that, you're like, something has to be something, wrong. Something, I, this can't be working. This is not actually working. This is not actually happening. It happened. And from there, I have used Juju ever since to instantiate all my private projects. So I do a lot of stuff now where I'm trying to learn something. I really heavily try to contribute to that ecosystem because it was just so fantastic. I could never have instantiated dashboard. It was a log, log stash. <laughs> So we pushed the logs in from multiple servers, sliced and diced it, pushed it into Kibana um, via, what was it, um, Elastic, Elasticsearch. Mm -hmm. So it was a, you know, a game changer. This open source world has always come to me and, and given me so much. And, and so I try to contribute back and um, I've got to, to contribute to like fun projects like TensorFlow, just the documentation, but still. Uh, very important for me because like, I feel like a lot of documentation in computer science areas, you come to these Git repos, you read it and you try to follow it and it just never works. And this was actually the biggest challenge for me. Um, I remember I studied all this machine learning stuff, did all the Coursera courses, but it wasn't enough. And I wanted to do the hardest thing, which at the time was object detection. 
And I said, okay, I'm not going to be able to build this from scratch because I, I just don't have a PhD person next to me. What's out there in the open source world? So I found a project that was kind of dying and it was someone uh, who's, who's now at Microsoft, but he was, I think, up in Washington and he had open sourced this faster RCNN implementation. I'm going to open source this later this summer now because uh, it's been a long time and I think it's fine. Um, it's not used anywhere uh, in production, but uh, I got that thing working and now I have it working on streaming data. So I can have streaming Bloomberg and detect faces in this streaming Bloomberg, you know, TV stuff. And this is just the beginning, you know, and this is all from scratch. There's no public cloud around me. I'm just, it's just all stuff in the, you in know, your machine on the machine and the machine at home and with the software from the internet, uh, that is the powerful stuff you were talking about democratizing. And I completely mm. agree. Like that's, that just wouldn't have happened years ago. You know, facial detection, streaming. I think I'm getting 15 frames a second. It's not the greatest. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not going to drive down the street with it, like you know, at Tesla. But it's uh, it's amazing to see that this all this stuff is there. And it, I had to refactor a lot of it. There was a lot of cruft because a lot of these uh, projects, they're more about benchmarks for white papers. Yeah. But then to productionalize it, to make it readable, to use it for real projects. Um, so I gave this talk in Sweden not too long ago, about two and a half years ago. Um, and I made up this thing called smoothie vatiket, where we have a bunch of bulk fruits and vegetables, and I need to sort them very quickly using AI. It's a very contrived example, but it was more about just showing that we can do this stuff and we can do it in open source. And you don't need to uh, go to university. These university you know, programs are fantastic for meeting people and getting those connections to the right industry partners to, to go further in your career. But some of this stuff is just out there. But let me let, let's let's circle in on this example sure. that you gave here, uh, where <clears throat> I get the sense that a lot of uh, projects made in academia are, are not. I get the sense they're made for writing a paper, like you said, right? Sure. So they, they'll write a piece of software and it's documented so the people in the team can read it. You hope at, at, sometimes if it's like two or three people, it's not it's not documented, right? It's just no. meant to to run the experiment and. Um, a lot of these people then go on into the workforce and expect to, uh, you know, produce great results at big companies. Mm. Have you seen that sort of uh, um, shift not working as well, where, you know, we have these mature software engineering principles that we try to stick to, Git and so on, and, and that clashing with the sort of everything is an experiment mindset? This is, uh, for me, like the biggest challenge in data science today is this um, clash of the titan cultures because we want our we want our production models we want to run in production and we want to do um, great things but that's not how you write the models they're in notebooks now all the time um, you're it, saying notebooks is not a production grade <laughs> setup. it can be if depends on the use case sometimes you want to just do a, a quick one off and show it to someone over their shoulder and say here's the numbers that's production. That can be okay. But um, this is the biggest um, challenge, and I haven't seen it move very quickly. I think I was most impressed lately with um, the things I've seen with Databricks, to be quite honest. I, I want to see you know more towards that where they have a notebook set up, but it's as close to Python as they could make it without doing what is in these uh, Julia notebooks. Um, 
uh, Jupyter Notebook, excuse me, where uh, you look at that stuff in Git and it's all JSON and I can't, I can't make heads or tails of whatever that is, but at least in, in, uh, you know, in Databricks, I can, I can basically read its Python. And if I, if we have to, we can transform it and run tests. Um, but it's very, it's a nascent stage. Like I know now Nutter is this framework for running unit tests in Databricks um, that just came out. So unit tests, what's that? Ooh. <laughs> This is the thing, like testing and uh, coming from code IBM. Code coverage. Code coverage. What? <laughs> it's always 100%. <laughs> um, I, I mean, these are things, these are <clears throat> cultural things that that when you came from the engineering backgrounds of some of these companies that, are, that we're building on top of, we had to do those things in Silicon Valley. But now uh, in, in the, um, I guess, the next stage, uh, you don't always need these things or they're not important and uh, you don't feel the pain of it till later when someone maybe made a model wrote it, uh, PhD, crazy, whiz, bang, boom, but then they move on to the next thing and they're gone. And you, what, have, to, what you the, have to decipher what, the what this stuff is. And the purpose and the sort of, like, is there room for that kind of stuff in, oh, in, sure. in big companies now? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, IBM is a huge company and we have uh, many talented PhDs. We have PhDs at uh, Swedbank. No, I mean, like a brilliant. retailer. Let's take a retailer that's looking to get really into ML. Ooh, uh, I mean, it, it depends when you say retailer, I mean, like, um, I just mean like, uh, like I'm not a data company or at least not tr what you traditionally think of as a data company, but now it's like, okay, we want to leverage AI to accelerate and make us more efficient, make us better, offer better products. We need to, uh, uh, adopt some best practices, mm. software engineering, best practices, or, um, okay. And that's also a question like, is software engineering best practice the same as AI best practice? It, mm. it hasn't, I don't think it has been. Is it, is it going in that direction? Like code coverage, version control of data, all that kind of stuff. How important is that even? I feel like code coverage, I, I wonder uh, sometimes, uh, what are we doing? Uh, because in one of the places, it wasn't in Sweden, but in one of the places I worked, uh, yeah, you have to have 90% code coverage in order to push to, to master. And you see just stuff will get covered. The reason I'm asking is but, like, but imagine no ops. Right, right. Yeah. But so like I'm a manager at the, at the retailer and I'm trying to think like what kind of uh, technical prerequisites need to be in place for me to, to do AI effectively. I want to, or efficiently rather, you know, I have the trade off here. I'm trying to think, should I move fast or should I, uh, uh, and build a technical debt or should I set things up to be good? And there's some kind of balance to be struck there. Definitely. Or what do you think? I, I think it's dependent on where are you uh, relative to your 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 peers, uh, so to speak, in your in your domain, or are you trying to go into? A, I would say first, no, you don't need a PhD, but you you probably need an advisor to someone who's done this before, who has built up this competence in a company, uh, who's been there, done that, and look at the situation because sometimes uh, you have a lot of data, but it, it's not all connected; it's dispersed, siloed, or whatever. Uh, in other places, you have a ton of data or maybe no data. Um, you have to take an assessment of kind of where are you and then where do you want to go as a company? I think this is the the, the place where I'm at now is that I want to see um, what is the ambitions? What are we wanting to build with AI as as people? And, uh, you know, we want it to be uh, ethical and, um, you know, fair and transparent and traceable. Uh, how do we get there? But what are we building towards? And uh, it's not always it's not always clear cut depending on the industry, because some industries I feel are going to drastically transform soon and others uh, maybe have a maybe a moat or or they have less incentive to change right away. Um, 
that's that's I think it's a very hard question uh, without knowing like which domain you would want to pick. But you've been pretty outspoken in in um, there being best practices. You know, you mentioned, for example, when you started at the automotive company that you know you you uh, were introducing Git. Uh, you're, you're talking about uh, the way services should set up, and now you know with ML there there is also you know. Um, ways of doing things that are becoming more uh, popular because they tend to work well. Um, yeah. I mean, are, are those uh, necessary things? Are you, are you championing them? And I would champion Git anytime, anytime, but uh, for all the right things. Um, and the problem can be uh, if you don't have any buy-in. So when you say I introduced Git, uh, I'll clarify. I did not introduce Git at that client. Mm -hmm. um, there was a great team uh, in the IT department, and they had actually been doing the, the due diligence to bring GitLab in particular in. Um, I'll share the story. We were on Perforce, which is a, another code versioning tool. It's perfectly fine, used a lot in the gaming industry. But in order to step up into uh, open source code and, and leverage certain things, we had to go to Git. And uh, this was kind of like, what is this stuff? What is all of this? And so it depends what you want to do uh, as an industry. And uh, for this particular um, client, they definitely needed to to go that route and uh, whole whole hog get into Git, uh, use automation, you know, Git sec ops, da 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 da, whatever you want to call it, dev ops, um, and take it from people who've already been there and built all that stuff. Um, but um, no, I did not introduce is that, a is that a strategic move or is that something that you would expect management to say, okay, we're modernizing, we're moving to this? Or is that something that IT would be like, okay, it's time to upgrade guys? They had to get buy-in from the business. And I think what pushed them, uh, quite frankly, was the autonomous stuff. Because uh, once they started realizing um, we want to build you know, this this competence and, and build up this, um, this know-how, <laughs> what are all the tools you're working with? Oh, that's awesome. That's, that's also really good. It came up from, from organic. And this is something I always credit them with was like, they, they listened, but it took a while, but it, it takes, so it's a big company. But to, could to they have stuff. gone to autonomous without doing these technical upgrades? It wasn't even upgrades. I mean, I would say like, it was, it was like a life change, you know, mind shift going to microservices, not trivial and, uh, going to Git and, and what does that, you can go to Git, nothing will change. If you don't change your mindset about how you're approaching your code and your models, that could be another thing. But, um, no, I, I really was uh, impressed once the shift started to happen. Uh, they've even been open sourcing code out into the public and uh, they called it first inner sourcing. Okay. So you would start with your inner source code and it was about opening up uh, just to each other. Here's what we've been working on in, in this silo and that silo. And it was it was fascinating to see it, the sharing and the collaboration that you really do come coming from a software background. You want to see that in any company that you're working in, that that openness and ability to um, go and help because there were a lot of teams that uh, had never used AWS and they were now being asked to to go to the cloud. Um, and I had my own opinions about some of those people because they they said everything will go to the cloud. And I said, no, not everything. But most most things that that should go to the cloud, they will go to the cloud, the public cloud. But there's going to be some things, some crown jewels maybe, and those won't go to the public cloud ever. And uh, that's why you have these hybrid situations popping up. And, and AI is sometimes it's about setting up the experiment, but the training happens on prem because it's cheaper. It's just much cheaper. Well, I mean, uh, but uh, to finish off your talk about uh, version control, I think it's easy to trivialize it and say, yeah, we have Git, but it's not about having the tool itself. I mean, no. if Git is a 
a philosophy of collaboration. Yes. You know, how do two people work on us on the same piece of code at the same time? What is the proper process of going from an experiment into something that is validated as good, put into production and all that kind of stuff? So it's really about the process and the, and the tool sort of codifies a good practice. But if you don't put that practice into, into, into good into use, the mix, in a mix, it does have, the, yeah, it's like the data swamp. You know, if you, if you don't, you know, curate your data and, and have good practices, of course you'll have a data swamp at the end of a couple of years. Um, and it's so too with the code. Uh, I've got plenty of stories of people, uh, using and not using code versioning tools and, and what happens when that we have these in university, you learn these lessons in university. When you try to email something, the email lost and now your code, you've got to write it all over again. Um, you don't want to repeat that when you're on the job. And so you've just learned the hygiene. At least I, I'm very methodical when I write uh, code that I always want to start with Git and inversion control, but I've learned that actually there's a, there's a culture where that's not so important and that's okay too and data science can be um not so much about we need to have the code under git uh, version control it's it, that that may not be so important and it's it's been a challenge for me actually coming into data science after all these these years um to see that uh yeah sometimes the notebook that's all that's all you need and uh and i have to learn to live with that because sometimes you're not building a web app you, to, to serve this model you just need to you know have something that to show someone over their shoulder here here's some results okay delete go move on mm. well, it, it's think, a balance yeah and, and that does happen a lot and then it sort of stops there and then um that's no good. But then the opposite can also happen where, where you're just stuck in processes and you're not having this um, rapid iteration that you do need to get going with AI. Um, I am curious maybe to use this as a segue to explore your other sort of interests that are tangentially related to computers because you are into music and other things. And I always find that there's a really nice crossover uh of, of my computer interest into everything else that I want to do. And so, you, you know, you're interested in finance and music and other things. Do you feel that there's a nice crossover of your interests? I think, I think music, uh, and electronic music has been something of a, like a mystery. Um, it feels like when, when, so I DJ, uh, and I know that sounds pretty, um, stereotyped. Uh, there's, there's a lot of, um, I think for me, uh, beauty in music and the fact that it can be digitized is uh, something that's kind of curious to me. Like, how did this even work? We've just got these zeros and ones. And uh, it's kind of like uh, very strange for me how we can take those and build something that that gives you emotion, uh, elicits some sort of emotion. And uh, for me, I was uh, getting into music more and more. And uh, I think it's uh, for me, this passion project of um, trying to put things together that don't usually belong, like being half Mexican. Uh, I've listened to a lot of, uh, you know, stuff the, that's coming from like the Spanish speaking world. And I wish there was more Spanish speaking media to consume. Um, and I've seen, you know, more and more that there's other places like K-pop has really taken off in the last 10 years. Um, and I got really into Japanese music, uh, Korean music, um, started listening to a lot of Swedish stuff. I, there were artists I did not know were Swedish. So I thought like Robin, I didn't know. I mean, it sounds very stupid now that I'm here and I live here and I see how, um, there are these, these superstars of Sweden. But at the time I, I thought, Tovalo, she's just from California. She just sounds 
it sounds like she's from the States. Uh, and, and it's been so cool to see Sweden's uh, musical prowess over the, over time and uh, to be a part of that and to walk the, the halls and see um, all the different artists labels uh, down the street, you know, in different corners of Stockholm, even to, um, to just get to be a part of it. But uh, yeah, music is something, it's a different part of the brain, but it, there's, um, I've studied musical theory now a little bit and uh, you learn the structure. And this is my challenge now to, to try to figure out how can you code music uh, because it, it's kind of a code in a way, but uh, using different tools, different. Uh, uh, sorry. Have you looked into generative type music? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, so I, my weapon of choice is Ableton, uh, Ableton live. And, uh, I had, I had, uh, worked with it a bunch, uh, and it's a lot of looping and synths and, and plugging stuff in. And, uh, I think that's a lot of fun. Uh, I don't think I'll ever make a career out of my music, but, uh, it's just about having fun and, uh, you know, meeting, meeting new people. And, and, uh, I think it's very inspiring actually to, to see what others are into. Cause I, I think, part of the uh, pandemic has been hard is, is getting to know people. And uh, so one of the things I'll ask is like, Oh, what do you, what do you listen to? What music are you into? Cause I usually um, it's, it's been a challenge to uh, work on really hard problems with people you'd never see. And so I just try to uh, get some tips. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, Bollywood stuff out there that I got into. Um, there's probably some, some videos of me dancing somewhere on YouTube <laughs> to, to some tracks. And, uh, you know, there's music from all over the place. And I think that's one of the things that connects us along with food. Um, it's something deeper. Um, but, but there is a code to music. Um, but, uh, I don't, I don't think I've learned it at all. Um, it's just something that that's, uh, for fun. I think there's something that makes people nervous about the crossroads of AI and humanity, you mm. know, AI making art or AI being used for something that's traditionally a very human endeavor. Uh, and I think we see that in every place. That's why people are so nervous about um, AI and healthcare, because they feel that that's very quintessentially human. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, AI augmenting uh, can they be used for things that we expect to be human? Can be used to design clothing, to write music, to uh, to uh, act as as uh, as advisors, as helpers, as uh, synthetic humans? I guess. Uh, I think synthetic humans are very dangerous, um, and, and I. Uh, the longer I work in this field, the more I get uh, worried um, because I see how fast things are happening. And having lived in the Valley and watched social media go from zero to a hundred real quick, um, AI could go even faster. And it's already being utilized in many ways for, you know, recommending a film on Netflix or what have you. But when it starts to do even more, it, it's our choice as humanity. How, how do we want to use this tool? And I get afraid that out of desperation or, um, a need for some sort of uh, profit, we we will do something that maybe won't be so optimal, but in in only in hindsight. But uh, for me, AI, uh, yeah, it, it's it's a powerful tool, but it's just a tool at the end of the day. And if we have to understand it, uh, build stuff with it, that's great. But it, it, I don't think it can be us uh, humans. I think we have to work with it, but we can't make us from it. Uh, if that makes sense. It's hard to explain for me because um, 
I'll, I'll know it when I see it, but this uncanny Valley stuff, I've watched all the, the sci-fi, you know, um, uh, series, uh, black mirror and, and all of these other things. And, uh, yeah, they're cautionary tales, uh, about, uh, what happens if we take things to the nth degree. And of course those will, those will be having their pitfalls, but right now just talking about, let's just take music, for example. Um, I don't like most of the music that comes out of the AI, um, circle to be quite perfectly frank. Um, I don't, I just don't think it's that good. I wouldn't listen to it. Do you like most music written by most people? <laughs> I, I guess uh, I need to listen more, but uh, no, I'm not that picky. I mean, I'm not that picky with, with, uh, I, I like a lot of different things, but when I listen to some of the stuff coming out of the conferences, mm. um, it, it, everyone's very fascinated. Like, look at this. It's, it's copied, you know, Beethoven and, and done, you know, uh, a mashup of, of these things. And, and I know that technically speaking, these are very hard things that they've, I guess, done, but I just won't listen to it. I, it it's just not there yet. So yeah. I, I know you've talked about gent, this um, metal genre that that might be more analogous to having an AI that's going to build stuff, and uh, you will you'll be like, yeah, this this works. Um, but uh, not so much for for me. Like music, for instance, it's it's about the soul, and uh, that's so intrinsically, intangibly, you know, it's hard to describe. But, um, yeah, for me, I, I guess, I guess, yeah, I'm just, um, kind of floundering here, but this is a hard problem, uh, to say when, yeah. when I hear, uh, music from an AI and I didn't know it, will I, will I detect that? And is it a problem? Well, you know, that meme where the guy is trying to jump up 10 steps at the same time, instead of going each little step. And, uh, there are no. sort of steps, uh, I mean, instead of, uh, you know, learning, uh, the math all the way up to calculus or something, you just jump straight to calculus. And in this case, you know, by jumping straight to AI, writing an entire song, waveform complete and everything, maybe that's too big a step because, you know, we use, uh, PC augmentation to make stuff better. Now, um, <clears throat> you might write, uh, you know, when you press your keyboard on the keyboard, the synthesizer will add granularity waves and other stuff. And you're like, wow. And then you, and you don't think, oh, the PC did that. You say, I did that. I picked the patch. Mm -hmm. I did this. And uh, maybe there's a, a more mild form of AI. In fact, I, I was working on one last week. I, I was chatting with a guy on Facebook that had trained WaveNet to imitate certain guitar amplifiers. And then, you know, you can make modifications to it. And so you could say that the AI is, is writing that part of the music. And yeah, you know, we fed it some data, but... Uh, there, there's a, 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 at least right now, there's a collaboration. There's a collaboration. Yeah. Featuring. Yeah. Featuring, Featuring AI. AI. So I guess we need to give some credit there where it's due. Definitely. Uh, so we're probably not there where the AI is writing stuff that's super compelling, at least not outside of gent music that's supposed to sound robotic. Gotta start somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And not a bad place to start, as, I, as I've understood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I wonder, like, you know, like with football, for example, the, flat, the fact that Zlatan is better than most people at football doesn't take away from the enjoyment that any one individual has in it. So... I don't know if we have to feel threatened whether or not an AI could produce art or music or anything like that. I guess if we go straight to it, like uh, the game of Go, uh, this this is this is where people get scared because I think there was a idea that the the world champions of Go uh, would trounce, uh, you know, the Alpha Alpha Go Alpha Zero whatever, um, and it just didn't happen. We, it was quite the opposite, I guess. Yeah. And but we learn moves from the AI in that moment, and and the world champion said, "This is actually really 
this is a fascinating move. So we have much to learn maybe from AI uh, in, in certain cases. But yeah, we have to build up. And uh, I hope we just focus on those, those good problems that, that we can build upon. So Hendrik is online. So hi, Hendrik. Oh, hi. hey. Hey, yeah, so Shana. yeah, exactly. He has been following the entire time and asking us no question. And uh, I will just ask the, the last one, which was a little bit more related to something that we have seen and observed during the this 68 episodes, or should we say 69? Yes, that was the, mm, yes. uh, uh, and that is that basically many of the, 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 the people working with data science, machine learning, and et cetera, they have a passion project as well on the side. Ooh. And so the question from Hendrik, and I think it's a real good one, is actually how much the passion project has importance in the way how you uh, fuel innovation, right? I love that. That That is something I definitely would agree with Hendrik on. What, so mm. what do you think? It's it's everything. Um, harnessing passion, I think, is uh, is something that I, it just, it, it, so I've, I've been in the lockdown, in the pandemic lockdown, and uh, in Sweden in general, I think a lot of good stuff comes from the cold winters that, you know, this is coding weather, basically, as I see it. And I'm very introverted, so I, I, I'm all good. Um, passion projects uh, can turn into products, and those products can turn into companies. And I think that that type of innovation, you have to cultivate it. And I've heard many stories of companies that talk, they have an innovation department but it's not going to come from a department. It has to come from a almost like a culture and an openness and a collaboration and a willingness to take risks. And at a big, big, big company, that can be very difficult to do. Um, but uh, that's why you do startups. Maybe sometimes you feel so passionately about something um, and you just take that risk. And one of the things I credit Sweden is that you have this system of, of a safety net to, to take bigger risks. Um, if you leave and you have uh, no healthcare in the United States, you're, you're, I took a big risk. I did a startup for you know, a while by myself. Didn't have any healthcare. Uh, didn't have really anything. But uh, here, you you have a safety net, and that, that should encourage you to take more risks. Actually, so um, it's, it's even better than that. Yeah. You know that if you work for someone and you have a passion project and you want to start a startup, you can go to your employer and say like, "Hey, I want to take six months off. I'm going to start to do my my company." Right? Exactly. Right, and uh, basically, <laughs> legally, you are entitled to do that, and uh, they will keep your seat until uh, you come back. It's amazing, right? It, it is. Um, it's amazing. That is how you. Uh, I think a lot of people would be like, "No, nah, that, that would be abused." But I, I don't see that kind of thing. Happening. I, I've not no. seen it yet. I've seen, uh, if anything, awesome feedback, and and they learn something. Even if the startup failed, you're still going to learn so much. You're going to bring that passion back to the exactly. company and and do stuff with them. Hopefully, I, I, as I would say, if you if you didn't, you know, fail upwards, you you're basically just going to keep building, uh, you know, together. Um, and, and there's not a lot of people in Sweden. I think we're about 10 million. Right. So everybody's got to be on, switched on as much as possible. And this is one of the difficulties I've, I've seen is that uh, innovation can get squelched very easily in a, in a permissionless environment. You, you're not allowed to do anything. So you're just kind of, you know, okay, I've got my lane and I do what I'm told. And uh, innovation usually is where you kind of do something you're not supposed to do. And, and there's, a, there's a give and a take there, you know, and the law and everything. But um, I think what, I, what I've seen is a lot of the great stuff comes when you're given a bit of leeway to to go on your own way. And this six-month sabbatical, uh, it's awesome. It's awesome. 
Does that mean that you have passion projects on this, like hobby projects that you work always, on on the side? Always. Um, I'm fueled by, you know, this curiosity for what's going on in ML, um, what's going on uh, next, what's coming after Python. Mm. This is what I always wonder. <laughs> I know a lot of people will, will be like, oh, come on, like this is going to be around for a long time and it will be. But my curiosity is um, there has to be there has to be more. There's there's always something cooking. And I look at also Web3 and, uh, you know, I think this culture that's come up and some of it's bad, some of it's good. Um, but but this is their time to build stuff and, and using cryptography to organize ourselves in new, fascinating ways. Uh, I just find it awesome. And, and I'm using, you know, some of this stuff. I know uh, the Linux kernel just got WireGuard not too long ago into uh, nice. kernel kernel space, um, which if you are not aware, that's a really amazing thing. Uh, usually if you have, you know, projects outside the user land, I guess that it's less efficient. And the computer scientist to me is like, well, now it's, it's even, you can run even more of this stuff and use less battery. It's more efficient from a environmental perspective. Um, I, th I think there's just so many interesting things going on and, and I just encourage more talking and, and collaborating. And that's how the great projects really can, can come to the fore and great companies that can come to the fore and build um, what comes next. Web3 is one of those fun technologies where it's easy to dismiss. And uh, I always think it's good to sort of question yourselves and, and think, is there something I'm missing? What, you know, when Web 2.0 came out, there there were these ideas of asynchronous communications with web pages and there was some some this thing called comet um where to me at the time it was obvious that you might want to have asynchronous messages from the web page and these were static web pages at the time and i was thinking cool you know if the if somebody posts something you might want to get an update or something but why would you want to send something asynchronously to a website what are you going to send to a website i don't get it. who knows who knows right that seems <laughs> totally useless and obviously it's not useless, right? And I think even the way that people conceptualize the internet now, you know, we don't think of the internet as websites. We think of it as this amorphous communication the medium, cloud. the cloud and so on. Uh, and people are probably not as savvy as to what AI is in the same way as to what the internet is. I don't think anybody knows what routing protocols are used to send the packets around the internet. No, they know what, how the internet works more on a conceptual level it, in a, just a good enough way that they can build products and be clever and innovative. They, they don't know the network layers, you know, one, two, three, four, not just the first couple physical, of layers, right? <clears throat> application, check summing and everything. The CCNA did, didn't do me wrong. Yeah. Right. But, but, uh, but like, how are you going to be creative with AI? or with Web3 or any of that stuff, if you can't talk about it as casually as we talk about the internet today? I think it's good to throw away Web3, actually. Um, throw away Web3 because it's, it's been, uh, it's it, maybe it's not tarnished, but it, it's talking about something I don't understand. Yeah, but Web2 um, was pretty crappy when people were talking about it, you have to admit. I never used that term either. And, and I've, heard this, point, I've heard this Industry 4.0. I see, so I have some friends, they're, they're very fancy, they're, they're working in the lawyer space and, and they're making a lot of money doing stuff. And, mm -hmm. and they say, uh, Eric, it's all about industry 4.0 now. And I'm like, well, it was two, three and what? Yeah, yeah. And, and so th there's a culture, this is a culture of framing what's going on to give you a idea of this world uh, and, and have a milestone, I guess. Mm. And I've just not lived in that space. Uh, I've kind of been in my bubble of computer science and just seeing, you know, what's going on from my point of view, but uh, web two, I, I still don't even know. I guess web two was like when we're the product. Is that it? No, web two was be, first you had static websites, right? Just a page. 
Mm-hmm. HTML, CSS. Yeah. And now you have a website where you send stuff to the page and the page updates and sends that like LinkedIn. LinkedIn is mm. back and forth. It's you're, you're connected to the website. Okay. I just, it, it was just the, 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 the gurus were talking about web 2.0 long before. And then, you know, it actually took a while to make anything meaningful. And so now web three is out. And the first thing people come up with are monkey NFTs. And you're like, oh my God. Yeah. This is the best you can come up with. But it, it uh, could be, it could be the, the greatest thing. I don't know. Like I know they're, they're launching their, uh, their universe, their metaverse. Yeah. The other world, I think it's called, but, uh, I, I it's early days. It, it feels cliche, but, uh, it's, it, it is early and things will maybe crash and burn, but we will have, uh, this technology after that. And what we do with it is up to us. Yeah. And for me, what I love about um, the web and, and uh, coding is it, it can be up to you what you mm. want to do with it and with AI. Mm. In certain aspects, it can be dangerous. Um, I've had hesitations of open sourcing uh, certain things. And I've heard others like they solved uh, a couple of problems in poker and they were told, don't open source this because it's going to ruin online you know, gambling. Um, and I think we're at that, pa- at that place where we, we are deciding what we acceptably put out into the world for others to use or not use. Um, and, and this is kind of, it's a cultural thing. Uh, what, you, what do you want to put out there and be known for? Um, but it's for Web3, I think uh, maybe I see it differently because for me, it's about cryptography and privacy and getting away from using AWS. Uh, I, I know there's a lot of vendors that maybe watch, but I, I, I feel like um, I've never been able to afford the public cloud companies until recently, now that I'm you know a little bit more established. But when I was building stuff, I had to stay off of the public clouds because it was just money out the window because I, I had my shoestring, you know, bootstrapping budget. Yeah. Um, and with Web3, now you you might not even have to go yeah. use AWS to build some sort of data platform. So the passion projects I'm working in, it's um, focusing on data science and, and open sourcing or opening up these capabilities that because I've worked in the industry now for a couple of years, uh, data lakes, data warehouses, all of these capabilities, these are all built on open source technologies and stacks. We can get a cloud publicly, privately, whichever you want, instantiate those things, pour data in, and that data is open source as well, usually, or, or it's, uh, you know, it starts that way and then you start to also make your own data. Um, nothing's going to stop you from, from building whatever you want. And that's the exciting thing that I guess web three gets right is like, you know, it's taking things on in a new form, a new fashion. Um, and that energy is very, it's very palpable for me, uh, to see the community and all the, the discords and the chats and stuff. It, it can be used for scams. And, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is, is maybe going to go with the wind, but, uh, just have fun with it and don't, don't lose a lot of money, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, I think, you know, if, and when I have kids, I'm, I'm, I'm going to look back on these times and these capabilities and say, you know, you can take this stuff, this code, this data, these techniques, do, do what you want. What do you want to do? Yeah. And that's going to be the interesting thing, um, to see what, what do they want to build? What do they want to solve? We have a lot of problems. I remember growing up and being told we're going to solve climate change and we're going to solve, oh, yeah. yeah, everything's kind of kick the can down the road. And, and sometimes you have to put a foot down and say, we got to do something. And this is, this is the other thing is, uh, for me, opening up these data science capabilities so that we can 
collaborate and bring people in to work and that's on something those I want to encourage people to talk about more. A lot of times when you hear people talking about AI ethics, I, pro- I want to invite people to talk about AI ethics from what responsibility do you have to make the world a better place? Not what, not who's going to get a loan at the bank or how are we going to increase click through on this website to get people to buy another pair of jeans or something like the AI ethics is how can I make the world a more equitable place or save the environment and that kind of stuff? What, what am I actually contributing to with my skills? Well said, well said. Yeah. I think it's too easy to, um, uh, pontificate on, uh, what, what it could be and, and talking about, uh, I mean, the, the stereotype is like the, the trolley problem. Mm. Uh, and, and we've all probably heard this thing too many times now. But um, I, I think for me, the environment, that's an easy one because we're using so much computational resources uh, to train these models. Foundational models probably take, I don't even know how much, you know, power, compute, uh, resources. And uh, I'm, 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 I know I'm going to hear some laughs, but I'm trying to push, uh, you know, to use these libraries that measure when you train your model, how much CO2 are you generating? Um, are you trying to say you should use maybe like a programming language that uses fewer resources? Oh, like oh. <laughs> what, what, what could that yeah. be? What, yeah. Name some names. I mean. <laughs> yeah, if there only were a, such a language. If there only were such a language that was efficient. Hmm. Okay, okay, cool. So, yeah, well, that's nice. We have environment in common uh, and see that as sort of as an ethical uh, We got one planet until, oh, sorry. Yeah. Until we get to uh, Mars, I guess. And and I think there's that debate of do we stay or do we go? And and I'm definitely on the let's stay because come on, uh, Mars, as great as Mars looks, I think we, our planet looks pretty cool too. It's uh, this room for, for a difference of opinion. We can, okay. I'll right. send you messages. It'll be, it's only an we'll, eight, we'll eight do minute it in the delay. after work, the after, after work. We'll right. Talk. Right. <laughs> Just, yeah. You won't be able to get it past that, that annoying delay when we're playing the lag, when we're playing counter-strike or whatever. Lag. No, yeah. I, I have to blame the lag because, because you're going right. to frag me right. like nobody's right. business. Right. I'm sure. Maybe AI can solve that. Who knows? Auto aim. I don't know. <laughs> so what's next then? So, uh, I think we've, we've decided that, uh, web three is, uh, Perhaps uh, substantial, uh, not necessarily in, in the uh, way it's marketed today. Uh, school to that. And, school. Um, uh, what like, uh, well, let's clarify one thing. Sure. Is AI, uh, rather, is deep learning and the direction is he- it's headed in, is that hype or not? What, what's your Definitely opinion? not hype. Look at, uh, when, when I look at the things that deep learning had to do, there's a lot of, I think a uh, debate about tabular data and uh, the, the uh, business analytics dashboarding world. But when you start stepping into driving down a road, processing images at, let's say, 30 frames per second and doing it to keep that truck or that car on the road, um, you're using neural nets. And until we get something better, uh, this is this is the uh, this is the way that they're building it. And and I also see like Dal Dal E, you know, and these other uh, big foundational models coming in, doing things that I've never seen a spreadsheet or a model from a spreadsheet alone do. Um, and for me, like. So I have to say I focused on image processing um, and that was a very conscientious effort because I knew NLP uh, takes a lot of computational resources, which I can't afford, and it takes massive data sets, which I also couldn't afford to hold on my machine. So I focused on image processing to kind of understand neural nets. um, And so that's why I keep harping on autonomous driving. But if you're going to build something uh, for AR, 
or you know any of these VR technologies. Um, it's hard. I don't see Tesla, you know, talking about anything else but their neural nets and building, you know, new hardware in the car to run those inferences faster um, than than neural networks. Uh, How does this tie back to like your average retailer? Because we're saying that AI is going to change everything. Is it going to change average retailers? Is it going to change average average banks? Change comes to all industries. Software is eating the world. That's, I think, my uh, feeling. And, and it has been uh, for quite a while. And I think each industry has uh, a moat to protect itself from these kinds of changes. But uh, Uber was, was one example that I brought, and I'll bring it back, that... Um, they did some things that uh, I think changed changed how we think of of uh, ride sharing, and uh, now we have uh, the potential for autonomous taxis and all this stuff that might come. It's only a matter of time, I think, where something will come for uh, those business moats and test the waters, test the moat. Um, and you better be ready. And it doesn't mean you have to build everything yourself. It could mean that you just need to acquire something. And I see that uh, a lot where you either you build it yourself or you buy it. So uh, maybe it's never too late, but, um, you know, be prudent. Uh, take advice from people who've, who've been doing this for a while. Um, but um, I think for me, there's there's two two sides. You, you're either trying to gather operational efficiency. You're trying to do something cheaper, maybe you're trying to process more documents with less people, uh, or you're trying to build a product that you couldn't build any other way and recommendation uh, engines. And, and uh, one of my favorites is Epidemic Sound. Um, they have just released this search tool. You give it audio and you search with the audio. That's awesome. That's, that's key because I've got this idea for a YouTube video and I want to do this track, but I can't put that track in because of course, it's not sure it's not available. I'm going to get demonetized or whatever. So these are the kinds of things that um, something's going to come. We won't know. We, we weren't expecting it. Um, there's drug discovery. I feel like every domain computers are touching it. I Software is touching to it. think of the most analog domains. Imagine like a tattoo right. studio using something like Dolly to help a client design a new tattoo pattern. <laughs> Yeah, beautiful, beautiful idea. I think this, it's it's uh, designing stuff that we we just have never been able to to put into words, and and now we have this tool that could uh, create stuff for us that we that we're like, okay, what would that look like? Um, I still joke that I want to see Dali draw itself. So mm. someone needs to to put that question ask to it. Ask it to divide ask by to, zero. Yeah, well, basically, it could be could be just crash and burn right there. But um, I'd love to to see uh, more tools like this because um, it can only I think empower us. Like I'm I'm not a great artist, so if I had something like that, I could at least talk about what I want. Um, I know this is kind of the the area of like no and low code tooling. But uh, as a computer scientist, I have a heavy bias against those oh, tools. Oh, man. The, the equivalent in music is, for me, that, that I, I know guitar very well. I can program guitar very well. Mm. I just can't shred super fast. If I could ask Dolly to write that stuff for me, that would save me so much time instead of having to just go sing to, to it. Andreas, I'm like, can you record this for me? <laughs> yeah. Do an air guitar, and, and it'll watch you. Yeah, and, and be like, Dolly just gets it and writes everything for me. That'd Sick. be great. So uh, you are a scrappy hacker now. I mean, you, you know how to do a bunch of stuff and you're business savvy. What is, what is up for you? What is next for you, for Eric, in the uh, coming six months and the near future? 
Okay, so six months. Uh, I'm going to go, go back to California for the first time. Uh, so I'm looking for a little time off. Typical uh, svensk tid mm. for there. Um, but I would like to come back to Sweden and reset. And um, I want to continue to open up, uh, work and collaborate. Um, I have fantastic colleagues. Uh, I've met them now uh, that the pandemic has started to end. We actually got to meet at the Data Innovation Summit for the first time, some of us. And uh, I just want to keep doing that more and more and, and see what we can build together. Um, on the on the side, uh, you know, I've been uh, always looking at uh, passion projects and, and this open source stuff and tooling. Um, so I'm looking to maybe go to a hackathon or two and, and just help out, uh, advise. Uh, I think as I get later in my career, there's this this feeling that you're driving forward and you're, you're pushing and, and you want to be at the top. But in order to get to the next level, you have to turn around and look who's not behind you, but but who who hasn't been here yet, but they want to come here. And that's the only way that you're going to get higher to that next level is together. Mm. So I'm looking to uh, keep continuing to collaborate with people um, all across the world. I've got uh, friends back in Silicon Valley, and I, I just want to check in with them and, and see what's going on because uh, I'm just, I'm just uh, in awe of all the stuff that happens out there on the internet and uh, open source world. It's fantastic. You're going to spread the good word about Stockholm? The great word. <laughs> I, I always give props to Sweden and Stockholm. Um, I think for me, it's been an absolute joy. I am not from Stockholm originally, so our family is from Småland. So my one of my next things in the next six months is I have to drive down to Småland and do like this Alt for Sverige, kiss the ground thing. You know, Småland's known for being very frugal. Uh, I am very, I am say. very frugal. <laughs> it's, it's in the DNA. I I feel Swedish in some way, but I know that I'm not. Mm. But in deep down, um, there's a reason this place felt like home, and I feel super blessed for that. So, yeah, that's awesome. Taxamica. All right, cool. Man, Eric, it's always fun to chat with you. Yeah. We got we got to eat a lot here and talk about a lot of AI stuff. So this is basically best kind of evening. Ah, oh, toppen.